welcome everyone to Be Better Betters. I'm the host, Spanky. Thanks for listening. My guest this week was the leader of one of the most successful and biggest sports betting syndicates of all time, the Kosher Boys. He was life mentored by Bob Morton and actually spoke at Bob Morton's eulogy. He's currently an options trader, but still dabbles a little bit in the sports betting. Please welcome Danny Kramer. Danny, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, a friend of mine mentioned that he was doing a podcast, and I said, oh, I never want to do a podcast. And then he said, well, why don't you speak to Spanky and, you know, at least speak to him. Do me a favor and speak to him. And I got to tell you, very, very persuasive. I've heard eight of your podcasts already. I can't get any work done. And I got to tell you, one after the other is just great. I learned a lot, different personalities, uh, different eras. And uh, I don't agree with everything they say, but I'm sure they're not going to agree with everything I say. So, But I just want to tell you, most of the guys, the eight I've heard, most of them have a way different background. They are gamblers that happen to be involved in sports. I am a sports guy that happened to get involved in gambling. If it was up to me, I'd never, I, 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 I don't, I know this is going to make some people laugh. I don't like gambling. I can't stand going to the casino. Uh, I never played golf in my life. I can't sit at a poker table for two minutes. Pool, I'll hit the cue ball in my head. There's <laughs> nothing I really know about gambling. Uh, but I wanted to get into the sports announcing business, but I realized that my concentration level and, you know, family background was not going to fast track me there. So I knew a lot about sports and I wanted to monetize it. And that's how I ended up getting involved in sports gambling. But I do not like to gamble. I don't like to consider myself a gambler. If I had recreation back when I was a kid, I would I would go to the Trotters because it was right by my high school. I did like that. But, you know, 20 minutes between races and, you know, I'd read the newspapers. I really didn't concentrate, but I did like horse racing. So but I haven't been to a racetrack in 30, whatever, nearly 30 years. And um, I mean, I go to a casino once every five years because my friends beg me to go and my friends oh, they're $100 betters, $50 betters, and they like to gamble. They like to gamble. I do not like to gamble. So I wanted to preface that. All these other guys, they like to gamble, and that's great. That's wonderful. There's nothing wrong with that. So I consider myself a sports guy. We're going to talk about gambling. I could talk about sports all day. Uh, gambling we'll talk about, but I'd much rather talk about sports because we could sit for 10 hours. I love it. Dan, that's, that's it's, it's, I can't, you know, I've been looking forward to this, uh, to bringing you on the podcast for so long for you to compliment the podcast like you did. I, it means the world to me, brother, um, you know, especially coming from you. And um, and that's an interesting concept, how you, you, you started off in sports and you're not, you don't like gambling. So that's, that's incredible. How, what, you know, let's talk about how you, you know, how much you loved sports growing up. Um, you know, where'd you grow up and, and what was, uh, what sports did you like? And, and then how, what was your first, if you could remember, what was your first introduction to gambling? 
Well, uh, I was, and I came from a very, very strict background, Orthodox Jews. I don't know if people know what an Orthodox Jew, they cannot do anything for 25 hours, sundown to darkness, sundown Friday night to darkness Saturday night. No phones, no TV. Uh, you can't cook in an oven. It's like the Amish. They're totally into their family. They go to synagogue. They're part of a community. It's a beautiful concept. And um, that's the way I grew up. And um, But I was in a very strict house. My mother was extremely strict. She was a math teacher. And that's where my love of numbers came from. Because when she used to tutor people, and she would used to tutor them when I was, you know, mid-50s, late-50s. I was five. I'm crawling on the... She told me to be quiet. And she would tutor people for a dollar an hour, two dollars an hour. And let me tell you, she put that two dollars and dollar and two dollars an hour in the bank, and it grew after fifty years. And she was very, very uh, thrifty. And um, but she taught me how to tell time at four four years old. So she would bring me into a store, and she says, "My son can tell time. What time is it?" And I'd go five after four, and they pinched my cheek, and they go, "Oh, he's such a small little boy." She also taught me that there were eight Ivy League schools. The Ivy League schools, she must have taught me that when I was seven because the Ivy League was formed officially in 1958. So in her mind, I'm a firstborn, you know, a mini genius because I could tell time at four and I'm going to an Ivy League school. And that is the farthest thing from the truth because in the history of this country, in this country, including gang members, including any group you want to terrorists. I hated school more than anybody. <laughs> I knew the first day in school when the last day of school was the only thing I liked was recess and maybe lunch. <laughs> my favorite, my favorite, so my favorite subject was dismissal. <laughs> I would sit there and I would daydream all day. So all these guys that go on podcasts, they're educated one has a master's degree. They all have bachelor degrees. They went to school, you know, educated. The Their father brought them to the racetrack. Their one father bet with a bookie. Well, I wasn't, I wasn't, so my, my parents wouldn't know what a casino is. They wouldn't know what a casino is. They wouldn't know what a point spread is till the day they died. Uh, you know, and um, I just had no background at all, nothing. So I love sports. Because my father took me to a game when I was eight years old to a Yankee game against Kansas City. And it was a doubleheader. And my father, he wasn't a baseball fan, but he took me to the game because that's what fathers did. And that green grass, I'll never forget it, that big stadium, I fell in love. And the game, the only time my father lived till 99, the only time my father ever lied to me, ever, was after the first game, it was a doubleheader. It was 14 innings. It wasn't long in those days because there wasn't two-minute commercial breaks. I think for 14 innings, the game may have been two hours and 50 minutes, three hours maybe, but my poor father had to stay for another five innings. So I said, oh, I can't wait for the second game. He said, oh, no, no. When the game goes 14 innings, they cancel because the players are too tired. <laughs> oh, all right, Pop. But I told my I God, we got to do this. So he said, well, we'll do it once a year. And I always, I used to have scheduled doubleheaders, scheduled. Yeah. So I would look and I'd pick a scheduled doubleheader every year, one a year. I would look at the weather forecast four or five days before, 
praying it wouldn't rain. And I couldn't understand why a team would give up two games for the price of one. I was nine years old. I asked everybody. Nobody knew. Really, nobody was really knowledgeable about sports. They read the paper. But, you know, I mean, other than the World Series, Yankee Stadium was not full by any means. Uh, you know, sports teams, a million dollar attendance was good in those days. But now, obviously, you get less than two million. It's a disaster. So it was a whole different ball game. And um, I just I my father started bringing me the sports section of the Times. I'd go to camp and he'd send me this. And all I would do is read that sports section. And it was just the only validation I got was that because I was bad in school. I was smart for the first three or four grades. But then after that, kids get smarter. They open a book, you know, they listen in class. And I'm only thinking about the Yankees and there was no Mets. Well, it's then the Mets in 62. And I'm thinking about the Giants and I'm thinking about Johnny Unitas. And my mind's just full with sports. I couldn't think of anything else. And I would daydream all day. And I also was a little, I wasn't a bad kid, but I obviously I needed a little Ritalin and I had a little ADD. I was so focused on that. And um, so the school was a little worried because I really wasn't concentrating. And I was, con you know, I would take tests and I would be considered, you know, on the brighter side. I don't know if that's true, but they were worried. And my mother was pulling her hair out, her beloved son. He's not doing anything. And but I just hated school. And I only thought about sports day and night. Did you play sports at all, or was it just watching sports as a fan? I well, we didn't have, obviously. I went to a a, a a yeshiva, a Hebrew day school. Hebrew subjects in the morning, English subjects in the afternoon. Long days. None of this nine to two business. You know, none of this nine to eight thirty to four thirty. Wow. So when I got to high school, that's another story. We used to go from nine to six fifteen. Oh if I God. had to go one day from 9 to 6.15 now, I would just faint. <laughs> yeah. So the days were so long, it was incredible. But public school, you guys went from 9 to 2, 8.30 yeah. to 1.30. I mean, my day was shot with school. And, of course, I wasn't getting anything out of it. I wasn't paying attention. I didn't even know what was going on. I just was I just thinking about sports day and night. That's all I could think about. So uh, how uh, did did that? So in the school, did you did were, were there organized sports? Did, did kids play baseball? Yeah, well, I'm and, sorry, and, I, I I got off the subject. Yeah, but, yeah. but be, be, because we were only a class of like 21, 22, there was just gym, but we didn't have a team or anything. But I was going to go to a high school that had a very good basketball team. They were in what they call the MJ MJSHL. I don't know if they're still around today. There were a school of like eight or nine yeshivas, Hebrew day schools, and they were in a league. So naturally, this was, I I went to all, I couldn't wait to see the players. And I was so enthusiastic that the seniors on the team, I was only a freshman, but, you know, I was kind of like the, I would talk about sports and I'd sound like a whiz kid. Because yeah. sports, I only knew sports. I couldn't add three, and well, I could add three and three. I couldn't spell cat and dog. So they like said, this guy is interesting. He's cute. He's this. So to make make a long story short, I was the youngest manager in the history of my high school, Yeshiva University High School, as a sophomore. So I was in on the huddles. I was in the locker room. I mean, I was not good. I mean, I couldn't. I could play a little, but nothing at that level. Nothing. 
So I was part of the team. And then, of course, my marks were so bad that I couldn't be the manager in my junior year. That was the end of that because my marks were bad. I failed a couple of courses and, and all that. But I went to high school. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. You, I don't want to. So, so anyway, yeah. being at this, being at this uh, thing. So now I wanted to get out of the house because I wanted a little freedom. And I also wanted to go to Ranger and Nick games. So I figured if I went to the school, there was one yeshiva that had a dormitory. Luckily, that's the Hebrew day school slash yeshiva my father went to. And his father went to. It was a hard one to get in. They had 130 kids in the class. Forty In, in those days, 40 or 45 would get into Ivy League schools. The kids were really smart. There were stringent things to get in. Somehow my father got me in. But I was just overmatched from day one. I wasn't prepared. You know, I was just completely overmatched. And I knew it right away. But I liked it so much because I was out of the house. And I can go to Ranger and Nick games. After your freshman year, there was no curfew. So I bought Ranger season tickets with another guy who sat in the upper deck. I think it was $1.50. Now, I had a $20 allowance. That included food. But I also worked on the side with kids, younger kids in my synagogue. So I was making $30, $40 a week. Not bad. Yeah. So I had a little money. I always said my parents wouldn't give me anything. Believe me. And um, I'd go to Ranger games and Nick games. And then I was with, you know, a roommate and couple of guys in school he says you know you can bet on these games i said what? <laughs> yeah i said who do you bet with a bookie i said a bookie what's a bookie so now i'm in 10th grade and they're telling me this stuff and i said oh my god i don't have to go to school i i know all the winners it's easy <laughs> it's easy so oh. i said well bookie huh so <clears throat> We found a street bookie, and the first bet I ever made him, I think, was a $20 bet. I won it. The next game I went to collect it, he said, I bet the opposite side, and I owe him $20. So right away, I said, oh, oh this isn't good. Now I suddenly realized, wait a minute. So now I said to myself, you know what? I didn't give him the $20. And I said to myself, you know what? I got to find a real bookie. So my roommate, he said, I know a bookie back home. He came from New Hampshire. I said, huh. He said it was towards, you know, the Rangers were in the playoffs now. He said, well, wait till next year. So sure enough, junior year, 1967, comes back. And I said, ah, I, I've been following the lines in the paper. They had it in the post, by the way. The post in those days, they had handicappers in those days. Milton Gross, Larry Merchant. I said, oh, I got a handful of winners, but I'm, oh, I can't afford it. I'm only going to make my best bet. He says, who do you like? Packers were coming off the Super Bowl. I swear to you, I can't make this up. Check the record books. They were the Super Bowl defending champ, and they were playing at home to the Lions. And the Lions were loaded, and Green Bay, I think, star was hurt or something, whatever. Maybe he was playing, but the, the Packers were really banged up. It was the opening day, and uh, the game was pick them in the paper. I said, Packers pick them. What are they giving away? <laughs> so I told my friend, go to the phone and bet. And bet he got the lines. Called, said these are the lines. Said I only want to bet the Packers because I can't afford to bet. Bet me ten bucks. He says, you know, you got to lay eleven to ten. I said eleven. Oh yeah, eleven. Why? Because it's a juice. 
said, oh, John, what's the difference? 11 to 10, 10, I'll win it. He goes back, he comes back, he says, you're not going to believe this. The game is a half a point, Green Bay. Half a point, now how could there be, I'm asking you, how could there be a half a point? Because there was no overtime in those days. Uh. There were ties. There were ties. There's still ties today in overtime, but they're rare. Yeah. Half a point. What's the difference? I'll lay it. Final score, 17-17. Welcome to Gam. So I said, ah, well, it's all right. And, you know, then I bet we'd bet a couple of games and I'd win. But, you know, you go to any dorm in college with a, a, a line of NBA games or NFL games, or, these guys are going to just grab you because this is easy. And they're going to bet you five. They might bet a parlay card. They would expect to they'll say, oh, I'll win all. You know, for a kid in in high school or college, you look at the games, they're easy. It's so easy. You know, they see a team three and another team, you know, and they go, oh, they're way better. Three. They'll win by 20. And we know that, you know, it's rough to do that. But that was my indoctrination to gamble. Incredible. Meanwhile, I also went to Monticello Raceway. I don't know if you ever heard of Monticello Raceway. And I was, when I was growing up, I had heard in my community that everybody went to Monticello Raceway. Monticello Raceway, yeah, they're horses and they drive the carts. Now, Jewish people, even religious people would go to the Catskills every summer. They'd go to the Grossingers, they'd go to the Concord, they'd go to Kutcher's, they'd go to Bungalows. So everybody, even in the Jewish community, the strict Jewish community said, oh, I went to Monticello Raceway. It's illegally, you can gamble. I mean, the rabbis wouldn't say to go gamble, but you're not breaking any really, you know, Jewish laws. So when I first, I was going to camp and then I was a waiter's counselor, I was able to, no curfew and I had it, I was, uh, had my car. I decided to go to Monticello Raceway. I had $20 in my pocket. I blew $10 and then the last thing, I said I I was steamed up and I bet the other $10, if I'm out of money, I can't call my parents because they'll send me home. That's the way they were. I put $10 to show. The horse finished third. I said, great, I'm even. It paid $220. I got back $11. <laughs> the next week, I got to get even. I blew it all. So I had no money. I ended up borrowing from a friend, maybe 10 bucks, and that had to last me for the summer. And I tell you the truth, I went to Monticello one time, but I may have bet two bucks or something, but it was invigorating. I said, this is the greatest. So I get home to high school, 11th grade. My roommate said, what did you do for the summer? Said, I went to the most amazing place, Monticello Raceway. I said, what? I said, yeah, it was great. Unbelievable. Well, it's the first day of school, no homework. He said, let's, we can go tonight. I said, we can go tonight. Sure. I said, I'm not going. It's an hour and 45 minutes away. He said, no, we'll go to Yonkers Raceway. I said, what's Yonkers Raceway? He said, that's where they have the cards. I said, they do? No, Monticello. He said, they have it all over you, don't. <laughs> that's how naive. That's how little I knew. And then I obviously, you know, didn't want to do my work. And I was going to Monticello, uh, to Yonkers Raceway. They had the bus from the Port Authority. And, you know, you start to speak to people and, you know, but when I went there, you know, between races, I read the paper and, and that's the way it started. 
Danny, man, this is like I'm, I'm. This is like fantasy land for me right now. I, I can hear you talk all day. This is incredible. Uh, <laughs> so I, I don't even. No, no, no. But this, we do. You know, listen. I'm, I'm. I, I love this. Um, I can't even think of a follow up question because it's so good. Uh, you're going to all these racetracks now. You're getting your feet wet and you're losing. I'm going to Yonkers. I'm not going to the thoroughbreds. You're not going to thoroughbreds. I knew there were thoroughbreds. I knew because I knew Kentucky Derby. I knew Kentucky Derby. I didn't know anything about the carts, the trotters. That I thought was just Monticello. I thought in the whole world that was the only track. Then I realized they had 80 tracks around in those days. They had tracks in every state. They had, you know. So I realized, but then I realized Yonkers and Roosevelt, the circuit, that was the main one. And and that's when I started to really like the races because I was bored. And, you know, sports that we had five channels in those days. So you came up. There's no Internet. There's nothing. This is 1967, 68. They had five channels, two, four, seven, maybe five and nine. There's no cable. There's no satellite. Nothing. So you could barely watch a game. So really, I mean, they had the baseball on, but you couldn't watch multiple games. And, you know, you get a little bored. People went to the Trotters. You know, they used to get 30000 on a weeknight at Yonkers, 40000 on a Saturday night at Roseville and Yonkers. 40000 You used to have to get there at 7.15 to bet daily doubles. The line was all over the place. It took you a half hour to get in. And the bus dropped us off at 7.15. We got in about a quarter to eight, and we ran to bet the daily double. We barely made it. And in those days, you couldn't say $100, and they punched you out a ticket $100. They would have to punch out $52 tickets. Or if you went to the $50 line, some tracks didn't have it. Yonkers did. They would punch two $50 tickets, but there was a long line. Wow. So it was way different. It's, you can't even conceive. You know, you hear people say, oh, you know, I'm considered a dinosaur. When did you start? 1988. 1988 (laughs) you know i got 20 years on these guys yeah absolutely absolutely all right so 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 this is you know when when you're doing all this and you say it's invigorating you're 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 really loving gambling and even though you're not winning um you, you still are 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 convinced that this is a path that you want to go down. Do you ever get into maybe, you know, as a college kid or a high school, whatever it is, possibly booking friends or or doing something, or did you ever get into, you know, how would you support the habit of going to the racetrack financially, given your parents weren't giving you any money? How did you build up a bankroll to keep doing what you did? Uh, That, 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 that's another story. We'll get to that. But you know, a couple of kids in my high school class, naturally now, kids are coming from all over the country. It's a big high school. You know, kids are a lot sharper and less cloistered than I was. So so uh, uh, another friend I had said, you know, a bookie, I didn't even know about the VIG, you know, when you take 11 to 10, it's better than laying 11 to 10. I said, no, it's not because I get the pick. He's a sitting duck. The guy said, Meh. Yeah, but he he couldn't he he realized that eleven to ten was good. He just didn't realize because again, with juniors in high school, what do we know? You know, today everybody at, at at six years old knows everything. 
I mean, my grandkids at eight years old, they go to the computer, boom, 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 they find anything they want. <laughs> so every every kid is brilliant today. Everybody. That's why you can't get into a good school because everybody the, the competition is off the charts. Yeah. If I was if I was at 15, 16 years old today, oh boy, I have no idea what I would do. <laughs> well, I probably know what I would do. I'd probably be a bartender because I try to get along with people. But yeah. that's what I would do. But I I no skill, you know, so I I knew that book, but I also found out pretty quickly, this was probably in high school, that booking is illegal. Now, I'm in enough trouble as it is with my parents. They're pulling the hair out. They don't know what's wrong with me. They want to send me to therapists. They want to send me to Vienna. They're, my mother is crazy. She's off the, she's a dismay. They just didn't understand. I try to explain it to them. Now I'm doing real bad in school. My father had to go down a couple of times. But again, I was a double legacy and I wasn't trouble. I was no trouble. I only miss, I, I think I missed one day in high school. Always showed up. I got suspended one time because a guy flipped me over in the hallway and the teacher was right there and threw us to the principal office. And the principal looked at me and said, go home for a day. I was a senior by then. So, but I always showed up. Wasn't a bad kid, didn't interrupt. I would just daydream all day. And by then, you know, I wasn't jumping out of a chair like I was in, in you know, uh, when I was a kid and falling off my chair and stuff. But, you know, I was doing so bad in school. In fact, I'll tell you a story. They had class rankings in those days. The class rankings came out. We had a class of 130 people. So everybody gets the class ranking. I look and I go, what? I was 113. <laughs> so everybody says, I said, once I'm telling people 113, how is that possible? <laughs> well, Danny, 113 isn't too good. I said, how is 16 guys worse than me? Who are they? <laughs> I try to find out. I found out about six of them. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I, if you ask where am I going to be, I said, eh, maybe 129. Maybe there's one guy I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I can't believe I'm 113 and a 130. Yeah. But I really, so I have no validation whatsoever. What's my validation? Talk about sports. As soon as I started talking about sports, people would stop and listen. All ages, older people, younger people, everybody. Because I guess I knew what I was talking about, but I did a lot of reading, a lot of, that's what was my life. So it's 16, 17, no ESPN, no talk show hosts. No noise, no, you know, no internet, no phones. Any no radio. Talking to How about talk what? radio, sports talk radio? Was it a, was... Very little. Bill Mazur in those days, and he was very mild, you know. Mm -hmm. They'd ask him questions, you know, how many uh, home runs did Nellot hit? He got it, and they'd say, oh, Bill Mazur's a sports genius. You know, the sports guys in those days, they understood what they were watching if they were watching the Yankees, but they didn't have an overview of the American League and the National League. Mm. They had they didn't have a concept of the whole because they were brought up a certain way. These are the rules of baseball. This is the way you got to think. And like even in those days, I would question what one loss record meant for a pitcher because they said if a pitcher gets run support and he's won 17 games. He's worse than a guy that got no run support and won eight games. Mm -hmm. Nolan Ryan was eight and 16 one year. He was unhittable, but he lost every game, one nothing and two one. So naturally, the guy said, Well, he doesn't know how to finish games. He looked, You can't win every game, one nothing. Yeah. You give up a run or two, you finish. 
There was a Met playoff game when the Astros played the Mets in 86. Mets, oh boy, that was the worst. Oh, the Mets were so overrated. They won 108 games. We loved Houston. We loved the Red Sox. Oh my God. And it was one day Gooden was 210 over Ryan. And the game was, well, it was a rain. And I just bet out on Ryan. He completely dominated the game. But as usual, I lost 2 1. There were double plays. Gooden gave up like 10 hits, a couple of walks. Ryan was brilliant. 11 strikeouts. But, you know, that's the that's that's the name of the game. That's why you got to play every day and you got to play volume. Because if you do anything with a short sample, anybody can lose. It's the long sample that counts. And what is a long sample? That people are going to argue. People are going to argue what a long sample is. Long sample is not as short as people think. People might say, well, three months is a long sample. No, it's not. Three years is a long sample. That's a sample. Two years, maybe. NFL, what's a year? Anybody can go 56 and 44 in the NFL. Anybody. So, you know. Awesome. So, okay. I forgot where we were. I forgot where we were. <laughs> no, no. This is, it's, it's great stuff. I, I'm just, so, so you talked about. I don't think it's good. I don't think it's going to last an hour. No, no, no. We're not going go way over an hour, but that's fine. We're uh, uh, so you said it's better to take eleven to ten than Layla, but you said no, it's not better. You know, I get to pick and choose the bookies at that time. Tucked. At that time, huh. yeah, yeah. At sixteen years old, yeah. At sixteen years old, I said that. That's sixteen. Yeah. That's that's a kid. That's a you know we we like I said, me and you walk into a college dormitory day and hear these kids talk about gambling. We'll laugh. We'll smile. We'll just listen. They'll have theories that are more advanced than the theories that were 50 years ago. But we'll laugh, we'll smile, we'll say, you'll get experience, you know. Yeah. They'll have all kinds of, you'll have a lot of kids that they think, oh, I just need a chance, I'm going to win. It's the same thing with the poker players. But, you know, a guy that's good in poker is good because he's beating other people. So he thinks maybe he's he's better than he is, but he goes up against other competition and he realizes that he's got to maintain a certain level. There's no levels in sports game. You can't be in a in a beginner's level, medium level. They're all the same. You lay an 11 at 10, period. Yeah. So there's no levels in poker. You might be a good 5'10 player, and I don't know anything about poker, but you sit at a 50 game, you're buried. Yeah. Because it's the same story. Six guy of six, a guy walks into a casino, ripped shirt, unkempt, hasn't shaved, hasn't showered in a week. And somebody says, that's the sixth best player in the world. I said, what? He's homeless. He says, but he only likes to play with the five best players in the world. <laughs> That's crazy. You gotta know your level. You got but sports, the sports is no levels. There's no levels. No you levels. either win it or you lose it. All right. So so you know, let's talk now. You're finishing high school. Do you do you Well you, now it's college. Now it's college, college time. Now and my college. parents Well, they're not gonna I have to go to college. But I know I'm not going to get. So I said, I'm going to use strategy. I'm going to apply. Everybody in my school is applying to Harvard, Yale, NYU. I go into the uh, to the, uh, the guidance counselor. I didn't even know there was a guidance counselor until the principal called me and asked me if I seen the guidance counselor. Said, What's a guidance counselor? <laughs> I go into the guidance counselor. He said, I see you. You you don't have anything on an application. I said, well, I, I, I know where I, where I want to go to. He said, where? I said, Queensborough Community College. <laughs> Queensborough Community College. Why? I said, because I'll get in. 
<laughs> and it was also close to Roseville, and it was also close to Yonkers, <laughs> and it was also it was mid range for everything. It was twenty five minutes away from my house, and I figured when I graduate community college, you automatically get into Queens. Queens is a good school, decent school. By the way, they played one of the final women's final four at Queens. I think in nineteen seventy three. Everybody laughed, you know, women. But I was there in the stands. I saw it Immaculata, I think. And I never thought it would be like it would today. But I took a women's sports class. I was the only man in this women's sports class. It was women in sports in college. I think it's the only course I picked. And a few of the women came to me and they said, <laughs> what are you doing here? But the teacher liked me. He said, oh, no, no. He's very serious about sports. And I was because I wanted to learn about everything. So I knew with Title IX and all that, that women were going to come on. I didn't think it would be like this with pro leagues. And, you know, some of these women players now are really getting good. You know, it's taking years and there's more depth and stuff like that. But so I figured Queensboro, I'll graduate. Two years, I'll go to Queens. My mother will be happy. Everybody will be happy. And I'll be right by the racetrack. It's great. So I went to Queensboro first day. I said, I get to pick my courses. What? <laughs> and I get to go to school three hours a day. What? I said, I actually think I'm going to do good. And sure enough, I do good. The competition level was, it's like laying a dollar 10 and now suddenly I'm laying a dollar three. <laughs> so I said, this is heaven. So I actually made it in two and a half years. I actually took me two and a half years, but I did it. And that's the only degree I got. I never even got a high school degree because I didn't pass a couple of Hebrew courses and they wouldn't give it to me. So I have no high school degree. Just a, college, a, a junior college degree. Now I go to Queens College, and I'm like a horse that's tiring at the wire. Three years there, it should have taken me two. Three years there, it's I'm now in towards the middle part of my sixth year. I just couldn't take it anymore. I quit nine credits short. I couldn't do it, but I had a reason because I had made a big score, and um, that's really how I really got started. Let's talk. Oh, so, what was the big score? Sport. I was going to the racetrack. I wasn't a big better, but it kept my biz. It kept me going. And there was it used to be pick fours, and there would be you'd have to pick four straight races. It was like a double daily double, and the pools were big in those days. They weren't forty two thousand. They were one hundred fifty thousand. You know, sixty thousand. Know, not like a thoroughbred million dollar pools, but enough. Make a long story short, there was a favorite there that I absolutely hated in one of the races, a two to five shot. So I didn't, it was a hurt. I didn't use her at all. And I worked around it. I ended up hitting it for six times, 9,600. Multiply it out, 55 grand, pay off a 5% to cash it. I got 50 grand. What would that be in today's money? I don't know, 400,000, half a million, 300,000, whatever. Now I'm ready to move out of my house. I paid three hundred twenty-five dollars rent with another with a roommate, and now I I was I I said what am I going to do with the money? I'm gambling, but I don't need that much to gamble. So I said I'm going to buy a racehorse. I buy a racehorse. Twelve five turned into like fifty-five thousand in six months. So you know, and then I started owning a few horses because I figured that would be a good thing to tell people. What are you doing? Couldn't tell people I was getting. My mother was already having a heart attack. My brother, my the whole family is just, you know, none of my uncles and aunts. I'm a total black sheep. You would have thought I was, you know, head of the, you know, head of the five families or something in, the, in their minds. <laughs> How can a good 
Jewish boy be a gambler? <laughs> I mean, think about it. Think about it. So whatever any of now these other guys on the podcast, well, they went to college, they got degrees, they were smart, they could have been successful in anything they did, probably. Not the very old timers, but they had something in them, those very old timers that you can't get. They had street smarts, they had to come in the hard way. So they have that it feel, they have that it. But these newer guys, you know, they educated, sharper than whips. 800 on their boards. You know, those are the kind of guys. But I'm not like that. I only know one thing, sports. But like I said, when I started to talk about sports, people would hear things that they never heard before. So they'd stop and they'd say, wow, this guy is sharp. You know, if you're smarter than, the, if you know more than the guy you're talking to, they think you're brilliant. If you know less than the guy is talking to, they think you're an idiot. But when it came to sports, I always seemingly knew more than the person I was talking to, really way more. Because, again, that's all I did. All I thought about. How, how did you get, you know, because like you said, there's no internet, there's no anything. To, to get your sports knowledge, you, you read the same newspapers that everybody else read. How, what did you do to expand that knowledge beyond the local teams? How were you able to have such a, uh, an insight into, you know, the whole American League, as you said? What did, did you do anything he, he, different? He, he, I, well, I, I, I would also go, I would go to, I would go to many games. I would also read the sporting news, sports illustrated sport. And there were other fringe magazines. I'd read them all. And if there was be a sports gambling book, I'd read it. Anything to do with sports, especially sports gambling, I'd read it. So, and the New York Times had a great sports section. Nobody, nobody read the New York Times. It's long. It's tedious. It's this. It's that. They wanted to read the Daily News, the Post. Of course, I read them. Post has a great sports section. That has a great sports section now. The rest of the paper, well, that's another story. But the New York Times, it's a paper of record, 171 years. And they had amazing sports section. So you got stuff out of the sports. Bob Martin used to read the New York Times religiously, to, to use an example. So, you know, it was a great sports section. But as I grew and as I, I started to, you know, I said to myself, maybe I should start reading some out-of-town papers. They had a place called Hodlings in the city, 42nd Street. And they get the Boston Globe. And then I would read a book that said the best college football is not the New York papers. They don't even have box scores. You barely got scores in those days. Sports phone was a huge, huge thing. I used to have to wait WINS every half hour to get scores. And sports phone, they gave pretty much up to the minute because they had a ticker. Sports phone came in, I think, the mid-70s. It was like the, like, like, you know, the, like, you know, the Lord came down from the sky. I mean, this was heaven. I could actually get scores. <laughs> so I, I I would start getting, I knew, I knew the main papers was like the, the New Orleans Times Picayune, Louisville Courier Journal, the Boston Globe. They had great sports sections and they had write-ups about all the college games and write-ups about all the NFL games and box scores. And believe me, it was very, very old type of box scores, even for pro football. You know, they just, it wasn't covered enough to really analyze it and use statistics extensively in those days. But then ESPN comes around in 1979, 1980, 
a couple of people starting to use computers. You know, cable TV is here. Satellite TV is here. And boom, the Red Sea opens. Well, late we'll, late we'll, 70s, we'll, early 80s. We'll get to that. So let's. So you, you own a couple of horses. What year now? You know, uh, it's several years after 70, college. 70, 75, yeah, 75. 75, yeah. Okay, now the bankroll, now, you know, you say you turn some money. Are you successful horse owner? Do you think this is all you're going to do? Um, are you betting at yeah, all? Yeah, sports? well, you- yeah. I would, now, 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 people would say, yeah, he was successful. He got information. I really wasn't into gambling that much, you know? I mean, you know, if I knew a horse trained good or I knew a horse was lame last week and looked good this week, I bet, but I never really bet that big. And believe me, I, I kept records. And over the long run, I was barely a winner, if that. Barely a winner. At and the, that's race, being at the racetrack. At the racetrack. At the racetrack. Barely a winner. Call me a break-even guy. And that's with that score. And that's, you know, 17%, 15 16 17%, 18% is brutal. Brutal. And by the 70s, by the way, the pools are thinning out now. Don't forget, OTB came around. A lot of people are not going to the racetrack. There used to be 40,000, like I said, 30,000. There would be a horse, Carol's Pride. So the the horse would open two to one because every Carol in the city would bet Carol's Pride. (laughs) So the horse ended up going off at seven to one. It should have been 30 to one. So right away, you got, you know, you're taking some money out of the pool. You know, and, you know, there'd be names. Everybody would bet name, you know, a George Deluxe or, you know, Danny Boy or whatever. Yeah. And, they, and they'd and they bet names. And, you know, there would be a name of a dog or something or whatever. And so there was a little soft money in the pool. And now it's not getting soft anymore. So if whatever knowledge I had by the late 70s, if I would have had it in the 60s, I definitely could have won. But now the pools are getting tighter and tighter. And even professional guys there that made their living, they started to leave. And the pools get smaller, by the way. You know, if you can bet $100 and uh, an exactor, $150 exactor and affect the odds, that's not good. No. That's what's good about sports. You bet it, you bet it, boom. You lay free, you lay free, that's what you get. Game closes four and a half, that's what you get. Game closes two and a half, that's what you get. Uh, racetrack betting, you don't know what you're going to get. Yeah. And there's a lot of late money. Sometimes guys are playing the bell. And, you know, it's it's a, it's a very rough game, 17%. And then don't forget, you got horses that, you know, got locked in or that didn't train that week. Not that they're not trying. People would say, well, he didn't try. Well, he didn't train that week. They want to win. They're just not going to kill themselves to win. It's kind of like playing LeBron James 28 minutes or 40 minutes. They want to win, but they're not going to kill them. If they're playing a weaker team and it's a regular season game, if it's a playoff game, they're going to go all out 42, 44 minutes. They're still trying to win. So there's a difference between not trying to win and not doing everything you can to win. Huge difference. Very few people get that distinction. Very few. They don't get it. Love I could sit here till I'm blue and nobody gets it. Okay, so so are you betting sports now? The racetrack, you're breaking even. You own a few horses. Right, I'm betting. Oh, yeah. Now, well, now I'm in college and I'm betting sports because now I got introduced to a couple of bookmakers and I got introduced to a local bookmaker that lived in my town. Listen to this. And he was betting. He, this guy says, oh, he'll pay you. Don't worry. Well, I was betting him 100 a game. 
really was over betting, but I was betting him a hundred a game and, you know, I was winning, losing. And then I think I owed him six, $700. I went to a real bad streak. We had to settle up every Tuesday. Unfortunately, I got involved. This is some story. Now I'm bringing back memories. I was in the cafeteria and I didn't talk to girls. I didn't talk to, I was just reading the newspaper. I had maybe a sheet of statistics and these guys were walking over and they looked over and they say, are you a basketball uh, better? I said, yeah, why? Oh, we like basketball too. We like the bet. I said, oh, so they, I said, well, what do you, what do you guys bet? Well, we bet, we bet this, we bet that. But, you know, we wouldn't mind going head to head with you. I said, head to head. Okay, what do we want to do? Well, let's have a pool. We'll each pick eight players in a week. And whatever that week's score is, I said, well, how much will we play? A dollar a point. Well, naturally, I'd pick Oscar Robertson. They'd pick Rick Barry. You know, we knew the top scorers, but these guys could score 30 points a night. So if a guy won 240 to 140, that's $100 a night. Well, to make a long story short, we were playing. I won one week. I lost. Well, I knew they were sharp, but I said, this is good. It's going to sharpen, sharpen me up. And one week, we had maybe eight players, and six of my players were hurt. We never really forgot about saying, what happens if a guy gets hurt? Can I replace it? Well, to make a long story short, I got swamped, and I owned $1,500. I didn't have it. Now, I got to tell you one thing. My motto is... You play, you pay. I don't want to hear, I, I did this, I did that. This guy didn't pay. This guy did this. I'm good for it. All the excuses. What are you worried? I like to hear, what are you worried about? That's a famous line. You know, you owe me some money. What are you worried about? Well, I want to get paid. Mm. It's a very simple thing. You win, you get paid. You lose, you pay. This is very simple. Yes. And a couple of your podcasters also kind of said it the same way. Yes. You're worried about getting yes. paid. You always want to get paid because you don't want to have to win twice. And me being, you know, a little Jewish kid, I realized I was going to be the first one not to get paid. So I wanted to make sure I was dealing with guys that were going to pay me. So now I owe fifteen hundred, and I owe this guy seven hundred. And I got to tell you the truth, I I, I maybe have seven hundred. I said, oh my god, what am I going to do? Well, these guys end up coming to my house. My mother said, who's out there? What's going on? I go out there. I said, don't worry. I'm going to show you. It was a Monday or Tuesday. I said, I'll show up in school Friday. You'll have your money. Okay, great. They left. Well, now I'm 800 short. I go to my grandmother. I asked her to borrow the 800. What's it for? I said, I went a little overboard. She gave me the 800. She told my aunts and uncles who told my mother. Well, now 60 years later, 50 years, I'm a pariah from the family. To this day, I'm a pariah because I borrowed 800 from my grandmother. I paid her back, but I'm a total pariah. First cousin, second cousins, I'm buried. So how can anybody go to your grandmother and borrow money? Well, I was ashamed of myself. Of course I was. Now I owe the bookmaker 700. I called him up and I said, yeah, you got to wait two weeks. I'll have it. No problem. I paid him. Now I want to bet. Got to put up. I owe my grandmother 800. I got to pay her off before I bet. It was the Super Bowl, Miami, Washington. One of the saddest days of my life. I love Miami so much. I didn't have money to bet. 
I didn't have money to bet. I would have probably bet $200 the bet of my life. I was just praying that Washington was going to win. Don Miami, I never saw a domination in my life. I know the final score was 14-7. The game played like 28-3. I mean, I was so sick. And I said, this can never, ever, ever happen again. Always know what you can lose. But I really didn't think about six guys getting hurt and not having any points in my corner and losing 1,500 points in a week. So I said, you always got to assume every bet you make, you're going to lose, no matter what. No matter what edge you have. You can lay three in the game and close 10. Don't make a difference. Always assume you're going to lose. And that was a motto that, you know, I've kept. So I learned my lesson young, young. Never want to go broke. Never go broke. Never go broke. Never go broke. Never. And it's, you know, you got to cut down. You got to cut down. You got to do other things. You do other things, but don't do it. But the main thing is getting paid, not getting paid. And, you know, guys make excuses all the time. Well, yeah, I'm good for it. I'm honorable. I'm this, I'm that. You know, there's three things. You got to be honorable. You got to be responsible. Because if you're honorable, but you're irresponsible, I'm not going to get paid this week. I need it this week because I owe somebody else. There's a lot of guys that go from hand to foot. When you don't pay them, you you hurt them. Yeah. You're taking away. You might be taking food off the table. They didn't do anything wrong to you, but they need your money. Yeah. They shouldn't be on a shoestring budget, but they are. So people that don't pay really hurt the industry in those days. They really, you, people get hurt. When, when one guy doesn't pay, it's a it, domino you know, effect. It's, it's, yeah. Exactly. And it's bad. It's really bad. And then the third thing that I learned, well, is the guy honorable and responsible, but does he also have a bankroll? Because the guy could be honorable and responsible, but if he's on a shoestring bankroll and you're betting him, you know, a few thousand a game and he owes you 23,000, but something happens to him and he can't pay you, but he'll pay you. No, that's, that's not good. That's not good. So you really want to deal with a guy that you know has a bankroll that's not going to come up with any excuses, no matter what. You know, if there's if there's a tragedy in his family, God forbid something happens to one of their kids, and they say, "I need two weeks to get my head together." Of course, that's an act of God, but just week to week in general can't be like that. So, 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 Danny, you're you're, you're when do you first see success betting sports? Because right now, you're not really winning betting sports early on in mid seventies, are you? Or, or, you know, you're, you're, or... I'm, I'm, no, I'm not really winning. I'm holding my own, but I'm not really winning. I'm winning. I'm losing. I'm winning. I got a little bankroll. I'm conservative. Are you working? Are you working or just still owning horses? Yeah, I was. Well, here's what happened. I was working. I was working with uh, under uh, underprivileged kids and I had a decent job. And I said, you know, maybe I'll do this and gamble on the side. But then I realized at the end of the year when the teacher, when one teacher gave me that was over me, gave me a good review. And the other teacher gave me an awful review because she said, you know, I had to go home early for the Sabbath. I think she was a little anti-Semitic. I don't know. And I then the supervisor called me and they said, Danny, I know you. I don't believe this bad review you got. This person's an old timer. And, you know, she's set in her ways. I want to put you in another district. I said, but I like that district because it was close to school. And I said, you know, Mrs. So, I know her name, Mrs. So-and-so. I don't think I want to do it anymore. And I was just a little demoralized because I said, if you have to work for somebody, 
you know, you, you know, it's working for somebody. I don't know my working for somebody if I get paid for it, you know, big money, I'll do whatever you want me to do, but it's got to be worth it. You know, there's certain things that people will, if somebody says to me, do you want to go bungee jumping? I'll say, are you out of your mind? If they say, I'll give you $10 million, go bungee jumping. I'm doing it. So there's really, other than your kids, other than your children, and maybe your wife, maybe, there's a price for everything. There really is a price for everything. People don't realize that, but there's a price for everything. Now, people will say, well, you know, there's certain things I won't do. It's against my, you know, it's, it's a lack of integrity. Yeah, but people have, you know, they have movable, uh, uh, and, you know, their integrity is a little movable if the price is right sometimes. Yeah. Flexible integrity is what I call. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so, okay. So you're, 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 so I'm not, your so, own... so I'm not, so I'm, 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 I hit the big score and now I am, now I'm betting, but now I run into a guy who says, you know, I was betting with him. I had like three or four bookmakers. I had one main bookmaker who I love because he said, you never have to worry about getting paid for me. He'd been around many years. He said, you come on Monday and get it. Monday? Whoa, this is great. Because then Monday, I, if I owed another bookmaker, I could pay him. You know, a little bit of a shoestring budget, but not broke. So I had a couple of bookmakers. And then a guy that I was going to a bookmaker through him said, I had a sheet of eight or nine guys. I want you to take it over and you get 50% of their losses. I said, that's great. He said, the only problem is it's in the red. I said, how much? 10,000. I said, well, that's a lot of money. He said, well, look at these figures. One guy lost 1,600, one guy. So I take the sheet over. Well, that was an experience because when guys won, I had to pay. And a couple of guys lost, they didn't pay me. Because now they're seeing that this guy's a pushover. So right out of the gate, I said, this isn't for me because I'm just going to get run over. But I kind of realized that this is kind of a way to go. Maybe get some sheets and earn. But I got to find guys that are going to pay me. So what I did was I got rid of that. And then I went to the two or three guys that I knew were good payers. And then I went to a couple of bookmakers and I said, do you need bookmakers? They said, yeah. So I had like a little sheet of five or six guys and I was making a little money. Now we know in that, in my mind, in my, in, in my mind, in those days, that wasn't breaking the law. We know today that you're part of a gambling operation. There's all kinds of legal problems if you have a sheet. So, but in those days, I didn't connect it with that. So I had a little sheet and I said, you know, earning is a good thing. It, it will help me with my bankroll and I can gamble and maybe I can get a little bit of a winning streak. But now I'm, you know, now I'm starting to sharpen up a little bit with gambling and I'm doing the same amount of work, but I'm looking at things a little differently and I'm exposed to gamblers. I'm listening to them. And I, I really got jolted when I lived, I moved, I moved in 1970, I moved in 1976. I moved 75 with a, with a roommate. And then in 76, I wanted to get my own apartment because he was staying up late. I went to bed early. I, you know, we had different time schedules. He would invite guests. I wanted to concentrate on just, I didn't want the noise. Okay, fine. So I moved into my own apartment. I had a little money. I moved into my own apartment. And um, there was a guy on top of me and I was walking and I had a stack of newspapers 
And he said, oh, you do a lot of reading? He said, I do a lot of reading about sports. Well, now, he says, where do you live? The floor below you. Why don't you come up and we'll talk? Well, he was a degenerate gambler. Sports only. So I started to talk. He says, where did this guy come from? That just because you know your sports doesn't mean you're going to pick winners. Yeah. But people, they hear a guy talk and they go, well, even if he can't pick, well, they know this today. Even if he can't pick winners, I want to hear what he has to say. So if I sit down with a guy and I haven't sat down with people in 20 years, but if I sit down with a guy and he says, I like these games, I'll ask him why. I don't care if the games win or lose, but I want to hear what he has to say about the game. Is there a subtlety that he I didn't think about? And is there some method that he, uh, you can learn from everybody, even if they don't pick winners. You got to sift through a lot of sand to get a little gold. So this guy was just amazed. This guy, he knows everything. I'm going to listen to him and I'm going to pick winners. It ain't that easy. But what I didn't know was after he started to trust me, he introduced me to a few bookmakers. I put him on my sheet. So now I had a seventh guy. And after about a year, he said, I want you to go to breakfast with me. I said, oh boy, I really don't. Well, yeah, go, you'll like it. He met with three lines makers in New York and at some coffee shop. One of the guys' names was Cassie Dell. I forgot their names. And they're going over the lines. And it's like nine in the morning. And they said, well, the Celtics should be four. And the guy said, nah, it should be three. And I'm listening to these guys. They don't really know too much, but I'm just listening. Don't say a word. And then the guy says, the guy that lived upstairs to me, we'll call him Mr. Z. Mr. Z says, you know, guys, um, I think three sounds right, uh, even though he loved the Celtics. So the game may have should have been four or five. He said, put it up three. And if you want, I'll bet for you. So the guy said, okay. And the guy says, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll bet for you guys. So where the game should have been four or even five, these guys would send it out three. The bookmakers in those days, they had no clue. Bailey some of them wouldn't know the difference between the 49ers and the 76ers. They think the 49ers play basketball, the 76ers play football. They, they barely knew Boston was in the South. Celtics were in Boston. The bookmakers were taught, you're right, you're 11 to 10, you win, boom, it's easy. And of course they did because they had, you know, they had guys that read the paper, opened the line and laid them 11 to 10. So they just let the money roll in in the long run as soon as, as long as they managed the business right. So I said to myself, wow, these are the odds makers? These are the guys I got to beat? So I get really charged up. And I said, you know, I'm going to I'm gonna give this a little bit more of a serious shrift. And I'm going to look at it more from a gambling point of view and less from a sports point of view. So I'll give you an example of how I looked at the sports. The Chiefs played the Vikings in the Super Bowl. Super Bowl number four. To me, it was a mismatch. Vikings were killing everybody. Kansas City was good, but I didn't think they were in the league in the Vikings. But the worst thing, the week of the Super Bowl, Len Dawson got involved in a scandal. They accused him of maybe dealing with some undesirables a year or two before that. There was maybe questions if they were going to suspend him for the Super Bowl. So I said, oh, my God, this is a joke. Minnesota is better. The quarterback's head is totally screwed up. I got to bet Minnesota. The game was like 11 and a half, 12. But I didn't want to lay those many points. 
So I came up with a brainstorm, money line. Those days, they really didn't have money lines. They really didn't. Bookmakers didn't have money lines. You know, in those days, bookmakers wouldn't put the line out till Sunday. Football, mm -hmm. Saturday, they didn't have advanced lines. Suddenly, a guy decided to put them out on Friday. I said, I got I to gotta find this guy. I mean, so you would get the line on Sunday and you'd have to bet. You'd have an idea maybe from the newspaper, but you never knew what the line was. That's how archaic it was in the early 70s. They would have JK Sports. That's how you got the overline line in the late 70s, early 80s. So, I mean, I ended up betting Minnesota on the money line. They end up getting killed. No problem. I'm buried. Next year, the opening game, Minnesota is home to Kansas City. I said, this is the easiest thing. Kansas City just killed them. I watched with my own eyes. But, of course, I'm not thinking about revenge. I'm not thinking about anything. So naturally, I, I bet Kansas City, I think, lay one and a half. The game closed Minnesota one and a half. I go, ooh. Now, of course, I had to call bookmakers day and night to get what the line. I would get rundowns. I said, what's happening here? Of course, Minnesota killed them. And that's when I realized there's more to it than just watching sports. But I still couldn't put it all together. So I liked sports, but I wasn't concentrating on necessarily odds and point spreads. I knew what the spread should be in my mind, but I didn't have an exact method. So when I hear these line makers, it just charged me up because I said, these guys don't know what they're talking about. It's scary. And these are who bookmakers are following. They're sending it out. And there were some wise guys in those days, but not a lot. And the wise guys stuck out. The wise guys stuck out. They were known all around the country. And that's how they got their, you know, their reputations. I don't know how much the wise guys knew, but they certainly knew more than the bookmakers in those days. So, you know. And they had a lot of outs and they were able to schedule all kinds of stuff. There was the East line, the West line, a lot of scalping. No Don Best in those days, 20 years away from that. How did anybody know what the right line was? So now I said, I got to stop putting things together. This is, uh, so, so you you move into an apartment right underneath one of the main lines makers of, of, of. One of the guy, no, one of the guys that knew the lines makers. Which is unbelievable coincidence. Unbelievable coincidence. Incredible coincidence. Correct. But he would take the lines makers for breakfast. They never picked up a check. Nobody ever picks up a check. And he would <laughs> tell the lines makers, well, you know. And he would tell the odds makers. And they would, and then he would bet for the odds makers. So the odds makers were betting into their own line that they knew was maybe a little cheap. So I said to myself, oh, this isn't kosher, but at least I know what I'm dealing with. So now the guy comes to me. A month later, he says, you know, I'm getting to be a known guy. I'm laying three. The game's going to five. I want you to bet for me. I said, great. Just tell me what you want me to bet. So a couple of games I would, you know, I'd bet for him. And a couple of games I didn't like, I would actually hold them. Mm. I don't want to say I was a bookie because it's man to man. Yeah. But I would actually hold them. And, you know, and I realized that, you know, the 11 to 10 is pretty good because most of the stuff I hold, he certainly wasn't better than 50-50. I had an opinion the other way. So even if I had a 50-50 opinion, and I figured I had a 50-50 opinion for sure, maybe 51-49, 52-48, not enough to win, but certainly enough to beat a guy that's laying 11 to 10. If I have a 52-48 opinion, I'm going to kill him. Yeah. And that's what I started to do. And my bankroll started to rise. And then I hired a guy to actually, I wanted to get serious to actually start keeping statistics, rudimentary statistics, home road, what are the prices, things that an eight-year-old can get on the internet in one second now. 
But in those days, they didn't have it. Nobody had that stuff. Goldsheet had some stuff. Goldsheet had some stuff. But they really didn't warrant the baseball. And I realized that baseball was a, you know, 10-cent line and, you know, better than a 20-cent line. And this is where to go. So I started to bet a little baseball because I figured, you know, if I'm laying a dollar five instead of a dollar ten right out of the gate, and that was a sport I really, really liked. But it was a hard sport because it was an everyday sport as opposed to football. You got all week to think. So I started to bet a little baseball and I hired this guy and I started to use statistics and the team would be 10 and one at home. And, you know, they'd be a dollar 40. I'd go, I'm just going to bet the home team. And, you know, we held our own. And then the light shine on me and I was getting a little bit of a reputation. I had some outs and, you know, I was holding my own and I met this guy who was loved baseball, Mr. Ivy League. 1979, love baseball. And I'm listening to this guy and I'm dazzled. I never heard a guy like this guy in my life. Never, not even close. Now, in those days, I used to go for lunch and all that. And I'd hear guys and I just, to me, it was total nonsense. More nonsensical then than it is today. And there's a lot of nonsense out there. Not that that's bad, but I would listen to this guy and I was dazzled with the things he said, the theories and the I said, this guy, I said, well, are you betting? He said, yeah, I'm betting and I'm winning. And I said, why don't you give me a few games and analysis? And he started to give me some games and I started to bet them and they were all underdogs. Nobody bet underdogs in those days because if you like the favorite, favorite's going to win. And I don't care if I lay 80 or 90 or 70 or 2-1. Seaver's paying, I'm betting them. Nobody cared. Nobody wanted to bet against Seaver. But you can always bet if the odds are high enough. He knew that. And he was very, very particular on price. So he would take a dollar eighty that I'd say to myself, is this guy out of his mind? The team's got no shot to win. And they'd win three to two. I said, why did you do it? And he broke it down. And I went, this is another dimension that I never thought about. So now I said, why don't we bet together next year? I've got the bookmakers. The money is a million percent, but I want you to put up money because I hate when a guy is going to bet. I'm going to give a guy a, a, a free roll without, I want to see money. If I don't see money, you could be the greatest handicapper in the world. I don't want to hear. Show me some money. Put up your own money. I said, you put up your own money, I'll match you. And if you're good, I'll double it. And if you, I'll triple it. He said, I said, you're betting anyway. He said, okay. Well, that first year was, oh, my Lord. I was, wasn't was betting big, but now I'm, I i can't believe it. I, I'm, I'm betting eight games. I'm winning five. They're all underdogs. Wow. I said, where did this guy come from? I, I got to get an armed guard. But now I see his methodology and I'm learning his methodology. And I'm also putting it onto other sports too. The platitudes, throw the platitudes out. Oh, the team is great. They got the winning culture. They know how to win. Yeah. The Vikings knew how to win last year. They don't know how to win this year. The same culture that there's no such culture is having Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. That's culture. There's no culture now in New England. You know, they don't have a quarterback, among, among other things. So that's a funny word. San Antonio with Greg Popovich. What a culture. They can't win a game. They can't cover a game. So culture is a funny word. It's an ESPN word, but 
these are just platitudes and you stay away from this stuff and you break it down. You got to break it down. You got to be subtle when you break it down. Now, we're not talking about college basketball. That's a free-for-all sport, 360 teams, 55 teams. You know that every price is not going to be right. You're dealing with 13,000 kids. The kids, some are no good, some are good. So that's a completely – I wouldn't even, even get into that. But baseball, obviously, is a different sport, 10-cent line. And I'm winning, and I said, I, we gotta, I got to up my bets. So he's still playing a certain amount of – and I'm now I'm upping my bets, but now I got to need I need bookmakers. Now, when I was beating bookmakers, I was also playing other games. And so they didn't you know, I, I was winning in baseball. But you know, they said, oh, we've been booking him for years. He's he wins. He loses. He's mercy pays. So nothing really struck them as, oh, this guy's got something because it was meshed with everything else. And I played a lot of games in other sports. So. Just to break even was good because now the baseball was kind of, you know, on the side and really nobody was noticing that first year. But after that first year, I'm in shock. And I said, what do you want to do next year? He said, we're going to do it. I said, well, you're going to up your bet? He said, yeah. Well, I said, I'll double what you do. Oh, okay, let's do it. So, but before we go into year two, how do you meet Mr. Ivy League? And what, what, how did, how did he know? And you know that you had an edge in baseball. This is what year? Seventy nine, or what you said? We started seventy nine. Yeah. So how did how did you? What was the catalyst that started saying, "Hey, listen, we're onto something here"? Did you read anything? Did something come out at you? Did did was there any new knowledge? What was the edge, in your opinion? What 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 was his edge? Yeah. What was our edge? Yeah. Oh, I knew what the edge. The edge was. The edge was. Yeah, he broke down every player every day. He broke down the levers. He had a guy that was 17 and three. So the odds makers made him two to one. The guy stunk. He walked guys. He, you know, he won eight, six, seven, five. Meanwhile, a guy would go five and ten. That was a pitcher he would want to bet on because. He was taking a dollar fifty. He might have made the game twenty. So, in the short run, maybe you know you lose, but in the long run, it's like you're, you're taking a dollar ten on a coin flip in the backyard. You know you're going to beat the guy when you take a dollar ten on a coin flip in the backyard, but not for one night. Do it for a week. Do it for a month. Do it for a year. Well, you won't. The guy won't last a year, or probably he won't even last a month. But the first day, you could take a dollar ten on coin flips. And lose. Very possible. It could happen. One night. Gotta be long run. You gotta be in for the long haul. Not the short haul. You can't quit somebody after five days or two weeks. You're in, you're in. Unless the guy is just, you know, you don't like his habits or he just shows you something in his character that would make you think that in the long run he's not going to last. But anyway, the season's over, 1980. And this guy goes right to work for 81. He gets every possible guide, every possible book. And he's working from December, January, February, March, every day. So by April 1st comes, he knows every guy cold. Plus the fact Bill James had started, the analytics guy, who now, of course, everybody uses analytics. And we were the biggest Bill James followers in the world. We said, this guy is right. RBIs don't mean anything. They did this. 
He was so dead on in everything he said, in our opinion. So listening to Bill James in those days would be like buying Google at $5. Wow. You know, everybody laughed at him. Mm. But we said, this is the nut. So what edge did we have? Because we had exact ratings, in our opinion, on players. And we would have, we didn't care if we had a nine cent edge or an 11 cent edge. We just did it. Because if we lost four games, the, the edge would come and, you know, they would come and they would help us in the long run. So we thought we had an edge. Now, the results showed we did have an edge and we were killing it. How did you meet this guy, Mr. Ivy League? If you don't mind, you know, me asking. A mutual guy introduced us because I think I might have been betting into a bookmaker that he introduced me to. Maybe he was earning from it. And uh, he said, I, I got this guy. I think you guys would really, because don't forget, I can talk sports all day. So when he would talk about baseball, but he talked more about the sport and betting. Mm. I would talk more about the sport. So he knew I knew my stuff. And there was uh, some theories that I threw out that he disagreed with. And there were some theories that I threw out that he said, hmm. And we still disagree on some theories after today, still today. I still say I'm right on my theories. He says he's right on his theories. Well, we've got about 40 some ideas of results. So I don't know if we're 50 50, but that's what happened. We we basically, you know, I might have impressed him, but he dazzled me for sure. So you guys, you you hit it off right away. Like this is this is, you know, this becomes this is a lifelong partner of yours, essentially. Um right. and 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 this is essentially start of the kosher boys syndicate. Um, with Correct. you and, and this gentleman, and well, you um, know why they called it. You know why they called us the Kosher Boys. Tell me, because I, I I wouldn't. Don't forget where I came from, an uh, Orthodox background. I wouldn't bet on Yom Kippur or Rosh Hashanah, no matter who was playing, no matter what the days we took off. So guys that were following us, guys that where are these guys? Oh, it's not what <laughs> they're taking off for a high holy days. What? And that didn't happen in the beginning. Maybe in the mid-80s, late-80s, they started calling us the kosher boys or whatever. You still bet on Saturdays, though. Yes, we did. And you're right. That's absolutely a disgrace. It's a disgrace. You still bet on Saturdays. That was good. That was good. <laughs> All right. So, by the way, how much of this are you going to edit? Because you, you, this is going to be the longest. What's your longest podcast? I, 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 don't worry about. It. We're not editing anything. We keep it all in. We can't, this is this is gold. I'm not, we're we're just getting started. Okay. So, so you, you and Mister Ivy League now. You're winning. You have your first season. You win. You up your you up your bet size. Are bookmakers starting to take notice? Or is your other work, which you said you were holding your own, but nothing too crazy or breaking even, um, but you're still, you know, the baseball's putting you ahead. Are bookmakers starting to take notice? Um, yes, in 81. Are, yes, in 81. Okay. Yes, because you know why? Because we're betting higher. And now okay. we need more bookmakers. And now word is spreading. Now, don't forget, greatest thing in the world, no Don Best. So nobody really, bookmakers really, they had to find out from somebody else that these games were moving. Nobody knew when a game moved. It was heaven. You can you can lay 30 on a game and call another guy five minutes later and lay the same 30 in 81, not in 83 or 84, but in 81. Nobody had a, they didn't know. And there were other bookmakers that maybe opened the game 40 instead of 35 that didn't get hit. So they wouldn't know what we were on that day. 
Mm. Now, Don Best, obviously, everybody knows everything. Yeah. So, you know, you see it, you know, you just, it's a whole different ballgame starting from 95 or 96, whatever, in that area. Yeah. But before that, everybody's in the dark. Everybody's in the dark. But so, I need more, we need more out. We need more out. But I never had to give anybody a free roll. You know why? Because everybody wanted the games. Yeah. Everybody wanted, all they had to do was move a couple of weeks and they went, wow. Because we were betting on the dogs. We weren't laying two to one and winning. Are you doing any totals at all? Or just all just, just sides? Sides. In the beginning, just sides. Total market wasn't really big. Was there a run line market back then? Not that I uh, only Only if the team was a huge favorite. They would yep. make them one and a half, two runs. Like the big red machine in the mid-70s was two and a half flat one night. And I laid the two and a half runs. They won three nothing. And I remember once in a, you just didn't want to lay 260, 270. Yeah. They didn't really put up prices that high. They just made it. Run. If the price got too high in the 70s, they made it runs. But there wasn't a run line like one and a half plus a dollar ten. No, mm. absolutely not. Totally archaic. There wasn't money lines in football. Yeah. Now, some guy is going to say, oh, yeah, there was. I had a bookmaker. But I mean, national market. Yeah. Don't forget the Vegas casinos. They had just, you know, they didn't really. First one was maybe 76 or something. Union Plaza. There's just a couple. They didn't really start get going till the 80s. Yeah. Early 80s, mid. That's when they started going. I got an interesting story for you talking about Vegas. So now, my because my sports knowledge was so good, and this, this bookmaker that I really trusted, who'd been around a long time, and said, don't worry, I'll pay on Monday. Because, again, my sports knowledge, people translated into being a winning gambler. That's not necessarily true. He wanted to own a legal sports book in Vegas. Now, I'd been to Vegas. To me, it was heaven because they had legal sports bets. And to me, it was great. I'd gone to Vegas two summers in a row. And I went with like a $3,000 bankroll, $4,000 bankroll. The first time I lasted eight days, I was broke. I went to Bill Dark in Del Mar because he let me stand by the ticker. I thought the ticker was the greatest thing in the world. And he had run lines. So I bet run lines. I don't think I won one game. I, I, I was broken eight days. So the next year I said, I'm going to come back. I came back with maybe a $4,000 bank. I'm ready to go. I'm this, I'm that. Bing. I lost 2000 right away. Now I'm really mad. I said, I don't want to go home in eight days. So I said, you know what? I've had enough. It was a Saturday night. I walked into Churchill Downs. The great Bob Mark. Never met him, but I'd heard about him. And they said, Churchill down, people were there, clipboards, this, that, an environment, chalkboards, unbelievable. I said, this is, this is amazing. So I just hung around. But finally, I had 2,000 in my pocket. There was a preseason football game. Don't forget, I went there to bet baseball. So it was probably in August, early August, whatever. It was Pittsburgh against the Rams. Pittsburgh had got eliminated, I think, the year before in the playoffs, but they were really good. But the Rams were at home, and I had read the local newspaper that the Rams were treating this like a regular season game. I think Jaworski was the quarterback. I might be wrong, going against Bradshaw. So I went up to the counter. I had 2,200. You know, there was a 2% tax in those days. So they give you a ticket for 220, yeah. not 2,200. <laughs> yeah. So I'd say, wait. So somebody took me aside and said, don't worry. This is Bob Martin. You're good. 
All right, it's legalized bookmaker. He's not going to screw me. A lot of people there. Heard a lot of things about him. I said, okay, very good. So 2200 I got. I asked him, how much do you take? He said, whatever you got in your pocket. I said, okay, ripped out 2000 Ranks it up 220 Opening kickoff, Pittsburgh runs it back. I'm down 7 nothing. <laughs> but I ended up winning the game. But I ended up winning the game. Now I got 4000 I go right back to Bill Dark. Seven days later, I was broke. Went home. <laughs> so now I love Vegas. So now this guy, my first bookmaker, says, would you like to own a sports book in Vegas? I said, are you crazy? Yeah. Now, I had just made that $50,000. So I had a little money. And I wasn't a big spender. And I was careful. And I said, how much would you need? He said, it's a $200,000 investment. I said, I only got 50. He said, you can invest 50 and you'll take a quarter. But you can run the place because I can't run the place. I can't get a license. So the, my partner was a guy who ran an Army and Navy store. He did not know that Boston, the Celtics played in Boston. But he didn't care because he was just going to do the administration part. And I was going to do the line moving. I didn't really know about bookmaking. But I said, you know, my sports knowledge will overtake it. I'm certainly better than the public. I didn't know about wise guys, but I figured if there was somebody that I thought would beat it, you know, I would be careful with my limits and I, I would I would learn on the job. That's what I thought. Make a long story short, we go before the gaming board. I have the biggest pain. The judge cancels the hearing. I had a kidney stone. They rushed me to a hospital. I was in the hospital for a week. They get me out. I go for the hearing. We lost by one vote. We didn't get it. It was wow. Sammy Cohn's Santa Anita Race and Sportsbook. We were going to buy the place and the land. The reason why I wanted to sell it is because he saw that the Stardust was open. This was in 77, the end of 77. You can find it in an old newspaper. I would have probably been the youngest bookmaker owner in the, in the, in the state. I don't know if that's a fact. I think I would have. But he saw that maybe because they lowered the tax to a quarter of 1%, that maybe it was time for him to get out. Me, I didn't care. Quarter of 1%. We'll book 11 to 10. I always want to take 11 to 10. I'm scared to do it in New York because I'm going to get pinched. So this is a dream. Yeah. My, I'm a pariah anyway in my family. What's the difference? At least I could say I got a legitimate business. Lost by one vote. Wow. One vote. That's amazing history that I don't even know. Not, nobody, I don't, knows nobody knows that. Nobody knows that story. Nobody. That's if my kids hear this podcast, they're going to faint. And they're not going to know about the podcast until I'm on my deathbed. But if <laughs> they hear it, they're going to say, this is, we don't know any of this stuff. Nobody knows any of this stuff. Wow. Nobody. So you could have ran the Santa Anita at one point. Santa Anita, yep. Santa Anita Sportsbook. It was right next door to the Churchill, I think, or down the block. Or, you know, Vegas was different in those days. A lot of sand and a lot of open space. Yeah. Who would have known, you know? I just thought sports gambling would be legal in the other states. I predicted it for, I was predicting it for many years. It was going to be legal. How could it not be legal? And then Bill Bradley made a federal law in 92. And I said, oh boy, it's going to be tough now to legalize it federally. And then of course the Supreme Court after years of lobbying in 2017. And I kind of knew in 2015 because I was at a hockey game and I saw the great Chris Christie. He was right next door to me. I didn't know anything about politics, but I knew he's the governor of Jersey or maybe the ex-governor at that time. 
And right after the period was over, I jumped over the rail and I said, Governor Christie, I'm a big fan of yours. And I just got to ask you one question. He says, well, what's your name? Are you a Ranger fan? He didn't let me ask him his question. Then he said, now what's your question? I said, well, they legalize sports gambling. He says, bet on it. Wow. I said, when? He said, a couple of years. And he was right. He was right. So I told everybody, they're legalizing sports gambling within five years. So when they legalized it two years later, everybody says, this guy's a genius. How did he know? <laughs> but I had a little inside information. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. I love it. Okay. So let's go back to back to 1981 now. Um, I want to I want to talk about how the operation is starting to grow. You said you needed more bookmakers. Is 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 Mr. Ivy League? Is he calling up bookmakers, or is that only your job? Is he? You know, who, let, let, let's talk about what everybody's role was in the operation, and when did you have to expand and hire more people? And you know, just give me a day in the life of of of, of this syndicate that you guys are starting now to grow well yeah he know I, I i didn't want him to call any bookmakers i just wanted him to work you know and i would talk to him and you know and sometimes i would handicap the handicapper sometimes i felt he he favored certain sides a certain methodology so i wouldn't bet as much for me maybe i'd bet a little more on some games on my own we bet what we were supposed to bet us and then i'd either subtract or add but i wanted him to simply work and I would take care of all the other stuff. So I need, I didn't want to call bookmakers. And he really didn't want to call it either. Very, very scared of getting pinched. Very scared. Never did get pinched. And um, he didn't do anything. But, except handicap. But he, um, I, 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 had, I wanted to find bookmakers. And they were hard to find. And I'm getting, I'm always scared. I, you know what? I cost myself so much money by not dealing with bookmakers because I was scared I wasn't going to get paid or I was scared they were going to go bad. And guys would say, yeah, well, you go to bookmaker, just don't run the figure too high. You know, you'll beat them. And then ultimately, maybe they're going to owe you a few thousand. So what? You're ahead of the game. Mentally, I couldn't do it. Mentally, I can't do it today. And it's definitely cost me lots of money, but I just can't handle it. I can't do it. It's not in my makeup to do it. I just, if I don't get paid, it just sets, sets me in a spiral. It's worse than having 10 losers. I don't care what the well the figure is, you know, three hundred thousand. But if it's a few thousands, I just I'm heartbroken because not only didn't I get paid, I I thought that I couldn't believe that the guy would do such a thing. How could I have made such a mistake? So I was always wanted to get paid, and that started from my first bet when the guy said I bet the other side, and I was like, what? we don't operate like that. So, you know, my main thing is you 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 like I said, you got to get paid and you want to pay. And by the way, I was a Monday morning payer. I went Monday morning and I would pay guys that I owe and then I'd wait till guys paid me. But I was a Monday morning payer. And if you're a Monday morning, Tuesday morning payer, your reputation, because people want to get paid early, they look good and they don't, they don't have to go and get money to pay somebody else. You so, sign a strength. You know, strength. It's sign of strength. Correct. Sign of strength. So now I'm looking for bookmakers and I realize there's plenty of bookmakers out there, but I'm scared I'm going to get paid. So there was a guy, I'm not going to no names, but there was a guy that said he had a lot of bookmakers. And I, I asked a couple of people and they said, he's good for the money. He's good for the money. And he gave me like four or five bookmakers, but he said, I got to take, you know, 20%, but I'll put up. No problem. And that's how I, no problem. And I did get paid. And then I had 
then I was at the end of 80. Now it's the second year we're done and we're just killing them. Now bookmakers are telling me, give me the game first. And you could bet more if you had a two dime limit, we'll give you a five dime limit. We want it first. Now you got to understand the difference between the point spread sports and baseball. For a bookmaker that really doesn't know, he's not mathematically inclined. Of course, it's different today. Everybody's a genius. But in those days, they're not mathematically inclined, you know, not that educated. They just know one way, take 11 to 10, we'll win, which they're right. If you laid four or uh, three on a game and they had to lay four, they'd say, oh, that's not good. He's a winner and we could be, we could push or he'll push and we'll be a loser. That's no good for us. But if I'm laying 30, I'm taking 30. And they're taking 20. What do they care? So what? A win is a winner. And that's the way they thought. So it was easy to get guys like that on your side because they didn't care if they had to take a dime worse. And we were so killing it that even a follower could make money. And they were. They didn't care. Because it wouldn't determine the outcome. I know you can't take 20 when the other guys are taking 30. I get it. But we had such an edge in those days. The line, boy, if we had lines like that today, oh my God. But it wouldn't be. So let me put it to you this way. In those days, we were betting between 85 and 90% on the dogs. Believe me, when we bet a favorite, it was a small favorite, dollar twenty. Boy, if we bet a favorite, I really uh, we pounded it. We I very rarely lost when we laid. We're so underdog oriented. But then as the years go on, we're betting less and less underdogs, less and less underdogs. And then as we get to the 90s, it's nearly 50-50. And towards the end, we were actually betting a few more favorites. That's when I knew that really the jig was up. That's when I knew the jig was up. Was you know, Bob ever, Martin wanted... What? Was there ever... Uh, I'm, I'm, I want to hear the Bob Martin quote. Go ahead. You're about to reference Bob, Bob Martin. Bob Martin once introduced me to a guy and says, this guy wins at baseball every year. This was in 87. I said, really? What does he do? He says he bets every underdog. Every game. I said, well, Bob, uh, really? He says, yeah, he's got a lot of outs. So, you know, you know, he's not betting big. And if the game is 10-20, maybe some guy will give him plus 15 and he'll bet it. So now I'm saying to myself, this guy makes money betting underdogs every year. That's how weak the line is. It's like I tell you, Spank, all you got to do is bet every home team underdog in football. And you do. Man, that would be a weak line, kid. If you want, if you bet it every year, every game. So when you said you bet favorites, was there ever, a, like, you know, did you ever notice the, the cap on the favorites that you would lay? Did you ever lay more than two to one? Was there, was, or, or very rarely? Maybe, maybe once every two years, maybe. Gotcha. Wow. But usually we, we lay 220, 230, it would be eight nothing after two. <laughs> I don't remember really losing a 220-230 game. But we I might have bet in the whole maybe 10 the whole life or something gotcha. playing 220-230. But you were definitely taking plus two to one, plus two twenties. Oh, all day good in plus two ten, good in plus two hundred. He was twenty-four and three. We got our heads handed, and we know we were on the right sides. Game after game. He had that big year and then the next year. But then, you know, the chickens come home to roost and you know. That's why a year sometimes is not long enough. 
So when you have all these bookmakers now, Danny, are you, are you, you know, are you making a cause yourself? Do you realize that you have to get help? Like how big is this? How after big is this thing year, getting? Yes. After the second year. Yes. I needed help. And after the second year, I had a guy helping me. And then I said, I better get a pay and collect guy. And, you know, I better get somebody to help because I can't do everything. And then I get a third guy to help. And we need, we need, yes, I started to need help because again, we've, again, after two years now, I'm saying to myself, this is, this is like a money tree. This is no joke. So, you know, if you're following something and you know what you follow, that's the problem with followers today. They don't know what they're following. They follow a guy blindly, but they don't know the sport themselves. How strong is it if you're following somebody and you know the sport and maybe you can just adjust his opinion a little bit in your mind. Like one of your podcasters said, you know, if I get two or three guys to match up, man, that's what I want to hear. They don't know each other. They come from different places. One guy may like the bet favorites. One guy may like the bet, and they match up. Man, that's a game I want to bet on. And it's true. And it's true. So, you know, if you, if you kind of have an opinion on your own and you're relying on somebody else to help you, that's really, really strong. And that's where followers sometimes get, you know, get in trouble because they just don't know enough what they're following. They want to follow a guy blindly. Okay, do it. You know, a lot of guys can win, but, you know, it pays to know what you're following. Let's put it that way, because those relationships peter out. Those relationships usually peter out. Usually. Baseball, the edge is proven. You have it. You know it. You're, 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 you're crushing it. When do you guys start getting into the other sports and then you start developing an edge in, in other sports? Mr. Ivy Lee wasn't interested in any other sports. I, I, now I'm really conscious. Now I realize I, I really want to be, I want to keep these bookmakers happy. And so I'm, I'm keeping records with the NBA. There's more sophisticated data on the NFL. College football, I was never successful. I didn't know enough. You know, I didn't know the players. I just bet on feel. I hate that word, feel, feel. Yeah, feels good. Feels good for tomorrow. Feels good for the next day. It's not going to last in the long run. I got to feel for it. Why do you have a feel and I don't have a feel? You know, <laughs> feels only feels only last for a certain point. They don't last forever. Yeah. So you want good, solid handicapping, good, solid numbers. You want reasons. You want reasons. Give me a reason why you like the game. Give it to me. I don't care if you lose. Give it to me. So... I mean, so now I want to keep, so now I'm betting NFL games. I'm betting. So these bookmakers are saying, this guy's an amazing customer. Now somebody came up with the point, I don't know what year, where no more uh, uh, red sheets, no more sheets, hot and cold, because guys would get in the red and they'd leave and they, you know, they go to another guy. They said, we're going to give guys 1% hot or cold. Mm. 1% of your handle. Yeah. That's Becky. I don't know what you do. I don't know what you bet, but I know you know guys that have pretty big handles. Think about what 1% every week would earn you in a year. Yeah. Think about it. Don't have to say it, but think about it. <laughs> 1%! <laughs> Another gift from heaven. So now I'm saying if I just can pick 51, 51 and a half, 52 winners, set. I'll keep the bookmakers happy. But I actually was doing a little better. So, but the bookmakers would say, I can't chase this guy. He bets too many games. He bets too many games. 
I bet half the board, but the lines were weak. The lines were weak. And you're I betting all, you're betting all year round. You're betting all year round. All year round, every day, 360 days a year, no vacations, no nothing. You know, uh, nothing. I took off for the All-Star break. I'd leave on a Sunday afternoon. That was the concession. Thanksgiving was double time. New Year's Day was double time. Christmas, well, there wasn't too much stuff for Christmas in those days. Did you have somebody run? Did you have on the Jewish holidays that somebody bet for you? And, and no, you just took no, off. no, no, I wouldn't let anybody do it. Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, no. I wouldn't let anybody do it. Gotcha. No, we didn't do it. We didn't do it. And Mr. Ivy League was okay Ivy with League that. Okay. Yes, he knew. He knew. Well, towards the end, there might have been some advanced lines. They started to put out some advanced numbers. Maybe, I don't know, late eight. I'm not sure. If there was an advanced numbers, maybe we'd take a little stab or something. But no, he, didn't, he, he knew. He knew. It was three days a year. Sometimes, a lot of the times, it was after the baseball season. Yeah. Sometimes. Not all the time, but sometimes. So it, the word now across the country is starting to spread, the kosher boys, the kosher boys. These guys are incredible. Um, do, the guys you know, are at night. They're playing cards. Guys are going to the track. Who are the koshers on today? Who are this? You know, and, and, and you know, it's just like, because we, again, we weren't winning. We were winning with underdogs. you got to understand the concept. Underdogs. Yeah. Do you know how hard it is to take a dollar thirty today and win a game? I mean, the, the prices are so short. The prices are so short. It's just in those days, it was like, you know, guys, we, we were taking 60. We should have been taking 38, 36. I mean, it was like because everybody was favorite-oriented. Nobody wanted to bet an underdog. Nobody wanted to bet against Seaver. Or Steve Carlton, well, he was on a bad team, or 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 you know, great pitchers or good teams. Nobody wanted to bet against the big red machine. But why couldn't you bet against the big red machine? They'd still lose one third of their games. You know, if you were taking enough, you could. Yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, when, when did you notice that? Hey, wait a minute, we're getting national attention here. This is this is. You know, this is people. Do you, were you ever sitting around where you're hearing people talk about your syndicate and they don't even know that you're the one who's who's running it? Like, does that ever happen? Do you ever notice, like, wow, I heard this group, they're really crushing a baseball. They're so sharp. Um, you, know, you know what? You know what? I know today if a guy gets hot for a couple of weeks or a couple of months, everybody knows who is the guy. Can I get to him? Can I find him? Those days was the dark ages. No Don Best, no internet, no nothing. Everybody was really in the dark. So it took it took a couple of years for word to start to spread. Yeah, you know, guys would talk at the celebrity deli, or they would talk somewhere, you know, in different places, and they'd say, "This guys, they did my my bookmaker tells me these guys I'm getting killed in baseball. These guys, they're killing it, and they win and they win. And they and so you know, it starts to get around. But I'm I'm really oblivious to it. I don't care. All I want to do is the end of the week, do the figures, pay or get paid, and let's move on. And again, I wasn't going to lunches in those days. I I wasn't doing anything. I just stayed to myself. I'd go to the racetrack, but the people at the racetrack, some of them were sports gamblers, but most of them were not. And I'd go to the racetrack at night, Yonkers and whatever. It was very, it wasn't a lot of people there anymore. And you know, that would be my safe haven. But I, I didn't socialize. I didn't socialize. I was really didn't want to socialize with most of these people. Just Not that work. there was anything wrong with it. Not no, that no, yeah. Yeah. There was just, there was just, 
there was nothing. I felt that there was nothing that I was that they were going to add, and I just you know, I just do. I I didn't want to sit around talking about gambling, and you know why? Because I told you, I'm I'm really a gambler, but I'm not a gambler. I like sports. Now, if a guy was a sports who wanted to gamble, whoa, let's talk. But we wouldn't talk gambling; we talk sports. Did any bookmakers chase you then? Because like the social the socializing had to lead to more outs, which you you were in dire need of. Or were you? Did you have enough of a, of a, a, a stable of outs that you didn't? You know, because the socializing for you know at least in my opinion, you need that to get the outs. Or you didn't well, need well, that sure. already. Go ahead. Well, no, I but I did, but but the sharp guys, but the sharp guys. Don't forget, I was going into bookmakers. I used to went into a couple of runners who had a few bookmakers. Mm-hmm. Runners that were honorable. You know, Mr. Ivy League introduced me to one or two. His friend might have introduced me. I, I was always desperate for outs, but again, honorable. So these guys would say, this guy's winning in baseball. I want to get in on it. These guys were sharp. They said, how can I get in on it? So they would tell me, I'm going to get you five more outs, but I'm taking 20%, 10%. I said, take whatever you want. And that's what happened. Because now they're believers. They see it with their own eyes. Yes. They don't want the games. They don't want anything. It's easy. They have their own little operation with me, and they're doing nothing. They're paying and collecting. All they got to do is show up with money, and all they got to do is have their hand out when I own. Free. So for them, they wanted to get out. So they were finding me out. And I told them, you got an out that doesn't pay you. I don't want to know about it. Yeah. You got anything that I don't want to know about. Even if a guy dies, I don't want to know about it. Okay, no problem. I don't even tell me. So that's what I did. Don't make your but guys problem. didn't don't. want. It. Guys really want. They wanted to really, even if they weren't inclined to pay, they wanted to pay because they were winning. Yes. You don't want. The, I always say, don't make your problem my problem. For example, let's talk about you. You you touch on this. The bookmaker says, "I want you to bet me first. How how did you manage that? Did several bookmakers ask you that? Only one guy is going to get it first. Not everybody's getting it first. So uh, how- what happened was so, yeah. yeah. Well, now I got now we got three guys betting, and now it's eighty two. We have a big year again. So now the thing is really, and now I said I, I you know, now bookmakers are starting. You know, word is getting out. Yeah. Word is it's three yeah. years now, and word is getting out. Now you're just going to sit there and say. Three years? What took three years? I know in three days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It wouldn't work like that in those days. Yeah. And don't forget, bookmakers were from the Bob Martin school. 11 to 10 will take care of all. And he's right. It will take care of all. But this was baseball. And the baseball odds were the weakest of all the sports. And the people that bet baseball, even though it was a 10-cent line, were the most they didn't have the knowledge that they even to this very minute even listen you might know some groups that were successful killed them in the nba killed them in the nfl killed them in the colleges but they tried baseball they had moderate success they might have quit after a couple of years maybe they broke even it wasn't worth it i'm sure you've come across some of those people that baseball stopped them where it should have been easier they just don't understand the game. No, they don't understand how to handicap. A computer really can't do it. I've analyzed it. I've discussed it. 
missed the Ivy League, and a couple of others. It's not a computer game. Now, we're going to have a guy that listens to us and says, this guy's a joke. I've got an algorithm. It can beat it. Maybe. Maybe he can. But in general, you're talking, you can't paint everybody with the same brush. It is not a game that computes too many variables that a computer is not going to know unless you want to update it every single day with every player rating. I don't know if anybody can do that. Maybe they can. But you've got to know every player. No. I decided to enhance it because we started to realize that, you know, who plays in these games is very important. Some of these a guy doesn't play. Most guys pl try to play every day. They still do in baseball today. A hundred and a, a guy can be worth 15 cents, 12 cents. And we want the dead edge. So now I came up with the brainstorm. Let's put tickers in our office. So I got two tickers in our office, one from Sports Network and one from maybe the AP or the, I forget already. And I had two tickers. So the lineups would come in. Of course, Don Best, the lineups comes in three hours before the game, which is great. In those days, the lineups would come in 45 minutes before the game. So we kind of wanted to wait if we weren't sure if a guy was going to play. We kind of knew it was going to play, but there might be a guy that we weren't sure, an injury, this, got hit by a pitch. And sometimes we wait for the lineup. I'd read the lineup and guy would be resting. we pound the game. So we didn't pound everything late, but we pounded some late because we'd see the lineup was out. So we had that. Nobody had that in those days. Mm. Nobody was looking at lineups in those mm. days. Again, early 80s. The guy says, well, I was doing it in the late 80s. Not maybe, but this is early 80s. Nobody do it. I had two tickers. So which seems very rudimentary today. This is all kindergarten and first grade stuff was cutting edge in those days of course so we had tickers and we the lineups to us was everything now of course the odds makers know the market i won't call them on the odd market no as soon as guys out they move it 15 cents on air they should you know sometimes they rate a player a little too low they rate a player a little too high but you know aaron judges out the yankees are 40 suddenly they're going to be a quarter you know maybe even 20 who knows so yeah they got it right but in those days bookmakers didn't know they were sitting ducks. Again, they brought up 11 to 10. They've been in the game business 30 years. They never lost. Now you got actually a crew that's winning. Baseball. But baseball. Well, now it's the early 80s. And also now here come early 80s. Here come a little computers and start. Hmm. Little. Hmm. Now by the mid 80s and late 80s. Although it's a different ball game. Go ahead. Any, oh, I was gonna get any other crews like the, the uh, I know the Poker Boys were involved and and they did they did baseball were they were did you way later than us way later than towards the end of our career okay. towards the end of our career that was later on towards was the end and 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 so, by the way and by the way we we I would say we beat them in they were on our sides oh eight out of ten times very rarely against us and by the way with the rare time there was opposition. Here's how you know that a handicapper is good or I has. When there was opposition, we would win. If you can beat the opposition or hold your own, you got something. Oh, yeah. How? What happens when a game, What happens when you lay 10 on a game and the game goes to 11 and a half? Uh, when, you get, when you take 10 on the game and the game goes to 11 and a half, do you hold your own? If you do, okay. If you, you're going to lose, you're going to win 45% of those games, something's not right. Yeah. So you want to know when there's opposition, what did what happened? Why did they do it? Is there a reason? 
So when there's very rare when there was opposition in baseball, very rare. But were when there, they came in, yeah, they were playing. They were playing, but they, we we beat them in most of the games. Were there other groups in those eighties, early to mid eighties, other syndicates um, that you that you noticed were lines? You know, any other groups that were as significant as you guys were you that you that, that are notable that you could recall? Not, not in baseball, no. But now in college football, I'm seeing moves that are wild. Mm. College basketball, I'm seeing moves that are wild. I didn't know anything about those sports, but I'm just seeing wild moves. NFL, I've seen little moves, not big, but you know, but I'm seeing wild moves in the colleges. Game would open seven, close 14. I said, What the hell's going on here? And then I heard there's some group with we using computers. I had been approached by a computer guy in 1980, 81 about using computers. I love the idea. But when I asked them, okay, show me what you got. I want you to bet a few games and put your money up. He ran faster than than the Jesse Owens. So, you know, <laughs> I had a couple of other guys. I always believed that computers could help because I figured my knowledge, their numbers, what a combination. And I had a computer guy for maybe 13, 14 years. He was good. How did I know he was good? Because the lines moved in his favor. He, you know, he didn't pick many winners, to tell you the truth. Maybe he was 51%, but the lines moved in his favor. So I figured, let me handicap the handicapper. And believe me, they help. Because if I like a game and the computer matches me, oh boy, that's a strong, it's strong. And the computer, you know, computer's not going to pick out 23 games. Now, in those days, they did because the line was so weak. Yeah. You had a one guy making it. He was barely looking at extensive box scores. I mean, they didn't put up lines in those days. Anything over 28. They didn't put up in at 35, 38, 31. Guys didn't really want to use a line bigger than 21. Some guys would use 24, 20. They didn't want to pick up the big names. Mm. And also, uh, they just um, they didn't use the, the small conferences. Mid-American. I mean, today, conference. they use every, every team. And you can bet big on every team. Yeah. That's why you got to be careful if you're a bookmaker. You don't want to be booking uh, Jacksonville State and San Houston State the same as you book Michigan and Ohio State. That's yeah. my opinion, but well, make, of course. Know. All right, so uh, just because I, 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 I want to make sure that the, 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 this is a question I just asked. I don't know if you know, like when you said some bookmakers ask you to bet bet them first. How do you manage something like that? Because you can't hit everybody first. Only one guy gets hit first, and how uh -huh. soon? How did you make these deals, and how soon after you placed your first bet did you realize, hey, wait a minute, i got to start betting this stuff simultaneously because right after I bet my first bookmaker, he's calling a bunch of other guys laying this stuff off, and this could hurt no my question. price overall. No question, but I would tell the, the, the first guy that came to the deal put me on pretty good. Mm. And I said, but you can't do anything with it for a minute, but you'll know the right side fast. He said, a minute's enough time. I got enough outs, Good. but by then I had two, three or four clerks. Three, I had three others now. So what we did was we had a list of who we were going to go in first, second, third, fourth, fifth, in order. And we would switch the order. Maybe the guy the guy we went in fourth got hit, and the guy we went in fifth didn't get hit. So we, or the guy fifth got hit in the fourth, so we moved him up to fourth. We were constantly switching. But the main two or three guys were the biggest outs, and we would hit them first. So this guy that said he was going to, 
after a couple of weeks, he realized a minute. So I would give him the game. He'd go out right away. So then I said, Ugh, that's not good. So then I kind of said, I'm going to give you the game, but I, you know, you, you, I think you're going out a little too fast. So what I did was I would give him the game simultaneously and bet two or three of the bigger bookmakers at the same time. And I told him what I was doing. And he said, okay, he was just, you know, so if I was laying, if I was taking 40, so maybe he was taking 35. And uh, then I go down the list. There was slow outs, of course. And again, no Don Bass. Mm -hmm. And I was always looking for slow outs. I didn't care if it was a dime and two dime. Fine. No problem. As long as I got paid, get paid. And, you know, towards the end, you know, an hour rolling. And if we wanted to take 30, we realized that we weren't going to average 30. We were going to be lucky to average 26, 27. So now we started to put it in our figures. So if he said plus 30 is this play, he, I said, well, plus 27 is this play. Yes. Because I said, that's what we're going to, that's what we're going to average. And that's what we did. So we would double hit, gotcha. you know, plus 30 and then plus 25. And then guys just moved it a dime right away. So we might have to take 30 and 20. And hopefully we took a little more 30 than 20 and we'd average 26, 27. And that's what we had to do. Did you ever resort to betting some bookmakers the wrong side? Never. We thought of that. We could have made money scalping. Wouldn't do it. I just didn't think it was fair to anybody. I wanted everybody on my side. I understand guys do it. God bless them. I understand why you do it. Whatever strategy that's good for you, do it. Uh, guys that move for you, if they want to go behind your back and do it, they deserve what they get. Uh, if they're up front and they turn everything in or they say they want to bet a couple of times and they're honest, well, that's another thing. You should be honest with them. But you know, and I know movers, they get a little impatient. They, you know, they think they know, you know, the worker always thinks he knows more than the boss. Mm -hmm. uh, the boss is doing this wrong. The boss is doing that wrong. Meanwhile, they're barely paying their rent. And the boss has got, you know, six houses and six cars. So, <laughs> but, you know, the boss got lucky. The boss got lucky. <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah. you know, we know the way that goes. They're eating the, the pastrami sandwich. The mustard's dripping down this shirt. And they're knocking this guy. They're knocking that guy. <laughs> I can't catch a break. I'm this. I'm that. We know that. The, the bottom line is the bottom line, period. So in the long run, the bottom line is the bottom line. Anybody can get lucky or unlucky in the yeah. short run. I'm talking about did you ever, some of these bookmakers that went out early. And and let, did, did, did they ever, and you tell them, hey, listen, you're going out a little too early. Did you ever have to? You know, put it was one on. guy. It was really one guy because he put me on a lot. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it because that, that then I would be screwing everybody. Exactly. Okay. I'm telling everybody go out. It, it wouldn't be fair. So I did it to one guy, and he put me on good. I did it to one guy, and he paid, and he paid. Yeah. And and you and you talked to him. You had a conversation, which is important. You have a conversation. Okay. It's you're going out too fast. You got to slow it down. Absolutely. You know? Well, then I told him what I had to do. But I said because it's hurting me. Otherwise, I don't want to do it. Yeah, but everybody knew that whatever side they got. In fact, the once in a blue moon that we bought it back, the once in a blue moon because the lineup was bad, very rare. Yeah, I don't think it was once a week. I don't think it was once a week. Once every two weeks, once a, a few times a year, we would make it very clear what we were doing, why we were doing it, 
just to make it clear, this guy's out. We can't play the game. It's it's a no bet. We're buying it back. Oh, okay. So everybody appreciated the honesty. Mm. Nobody could knock the honesty and integrity. That's the way, that was our motto. I wanted to do it the right way. If I couldn't do it the right way, I didn't want to do it because I realized people were counting on us. Yes. Everybody, the, not just bookmakers, the runners, the movers, everybody was 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 Everybody's counting on you. So I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. And don't forget the figures with so many outs and all that. Well, we understand other syndicates have got, you know, thousands of bets. I understand that. But you got computers helping you and all that. We didn't have computers. I have this little calculator here. That's what I had. And it would take me a couple of hours to do the figures. And I wanted to do it all myself. And I didn't really want anybody to know what was going on. So I didn't want the clerks to know what was going on. You know, I didn't want to know anybody on decisions. I didn't want anybody to know anything. I just wanted to keep it quiet. So you guys are betting, you know, from 1979. Uh, well, let's say 80. Let's 79 let's say 80. was tried. Try to it's an 80 to what year? How long does this thing last? Because I come up in 99, 2000, and I know about you guys, and I'm hearing the buzz that, hey, who, who are the coachers on the Cardinals, or you hear the name, the kosher boys, the kosher boys. And uh, so you guys were still, you know, 2000, 2000. How long does this thing last? Well, we went to 95, and then the May, I had major legal problems in 95, which that's a whole other, you know, a whole, a whole other story, whole other podcast. And um, I said to myself, naturally, my family was just enraged the whole bit, you know. And uh, I said, this can't happen anymore. I can't get, I just can't put myself in this position. And I had good lawyers. And I told the lawyers, I'm only gambling. They said, yeah, I know you're gambling. And if you went to court, you know. You'd have a good shot, but there was also some racing involved, and it was a, a real front page scandal. And uh, they said, you know, when you have a operation uh, and you and you're betting, it's still the business of gambling. And you know, the statue reads business of gambling, even though the a, a better has never been busted. But you know, it's a winnable case, but it's a tricky case. And essentially with race. So I said, you know what? I'm just going to pack it all in. And Mr. Ivy League said, we're done. And that was it. 95, 96, 95 did. Settled the case in 96. I think we said maybe in 97 we'll come back. But I forgot what happened. And then 98, I came back very quietly. No clerks. Now there's Don Best. You know, is no clerks, no movers. I'm just going to do it. We're going to do it on a small basis, very small basis. Me and Mr. Ivy Lee, and that's exactly what we did. And we won another, I don't know, till 2005, I guess. Sometimes we'd play half a year and quit. Um, you know, there wasn't as much noise, wasn't as much hubbub. The islands now are out there, mm. you know. More outs, although they're taking less. New York outs are evaporating, which isn't good. The market was kind of evaporating. You needed Vegas. So it was a good time anyway to cut down. And um, But we continued to win. And then at the end of 05, we saw that the edge, we won a little, but it was a slog. And, and Mr. Ivy League was really wearing down, really wearing down. And it just got to the point where you're doing so much work and you're not making enough. 
if you're not making 50 units, you're making six units and you're doing all this work, you're winning. It's just too much work for what you do. So, you know, if I, again, it's the same thing. What are you, what are you making? If I say, come, I want you to help me move from my house and we're going to move across country and I'm going to pay you $10,000. You're going to laugh. I said, paying you a million dollars. You say, when should I come? <laughs> so, you know, how, how fast can I be there? So, you know, it's the same thing. And that was it. And we just quietly, that was the end. And I just, that now I was heavily involved in trading options. I started to get serious when I got, uh, you know, when I had legal problems in 95. And I was trading options since 86. But just, you know, fooling around like a guy would open up the paper and say, I like the Jets today. I was fooling around. I wasn't taking it seriously. Now I started to take it seriously. And I really started to take it seriously. And now I started to do good. Not great, but good. You know, I'm, I'm more of a plugger. I'm more of a ham and egg or plugger. I don't go for the big score. I like to just slow and steady. Like some of the old timers, slow and steady. Although some of the old timers are wild. They bet their bank rolls on, you know, flip of a coin. But some wouldn't. And, um, and that's what happens. Now it's just a very, very quiet life the last, you know, 30 some odd years. The parallels between option trading and sports. Can you describe some of that and how never, some... never got nervous when I was betting a sports game and I have a, a you know, a, a, you know, a, a decision, a big decision. I never got nervous. I always think I'm going to lose anyway. Options scared out of your mind because when you, when you sell an option and the market's going down, you not only pay off on the bet, you pay off on every point. Can you imagine betting an NFL game and having to pay off on every touchdown? Mm. Let's say you bet a dime on a game. It's a pick em game. And you're also betting a dime on every point. And the team loses 28 nothing. You bet a dime on the game, you end up losing 28000 mm-hmm. You don't have that kind of money. You're a dime better. Yeah. That's what options is. That's what options is. You pay off on every point. So if the market has a real, real bad day, you can get destroyed if you're not careful. Market's down at 500 points in a day, 800 points in a day, 1,000 points in a day. You're paying off on the point. So you got to be a little careful. My, I never sweated. My, my palms would get sweaty. And, and you have to be careful. So I said to myself, maybe 10 years ago, I don't want my, my, my palms sweating anymore. I'm just going to assume that the market's going to be down 1,000. Go from there, just like I used to do with sports. And it's a much easier lifestyle. You make less, but... You know, I'm not, you know, I don't have Taylor Swift on my arm and I don't need four cars and, you know, <laughs> carefully. You expect the worst and you won't be disappointed, I guess. Is. Exactly. Exactly. Well, let's let's talk about Bob Martin, because this is such an incredible thing. How do you meet Bob Martin? And, you know, how, you know, you, you, you spoke at Bob Martin's eulogy. So you guys obviously got very, very close over the years. Um how how did you get to know Bob and and tell me uh you know would love to hear anything you want to share about that? Well, his reputation was beyond compare and uh, naturally a legend. And when'd you meet and him? This, this this guy who I knew in New York. This guy's name was Ronnie Hirschhorn. There'll be people that hear your podcast that go, "Oh boy!" You know, I'd known him since the early seventies when I started betting, and I moved to my own apartment. He lived a couple blocks away. He was a handful. And he'd been nudging me for the last couple of years. You got to meet Bob. You got to meet this guy. I said, I really don't want to go out. I didn't want to go out with Ronnie for sure. He's been dead a long time. Otherwise, I wouldn't say that. But anyway, 
He said, you got it. And one, I said, I'm too busy. I can't do it. So one time he called me. He said, listen, it's the all-star break. He's going to be in. Don't tell me you're too busy. I said, eh, you got me. Okay. Uh, so we're going to meet at Peter Luger's. Okay. Now, I guess he had heard that this is guys killing it in baseball. Now, Bob Martin was all ears. He wasn't much mouth. He liked to listen. Like I do, I like to listen. He didn't mind expressing an opinion if he was in the mood and he was with people he was comfortable with, but he was a listener. So we, I met him, me, Ronnie, another guy, him, and we're talking. And he said, you know, how do you do it? And this and that. I said, well, you know, you got to rate the players. You got to be on top of everything. And the odds makers, you know, we, you know, we play mostly underdogs. That's when he told me about this guy that bet every underdog. See, he's six probably. And um, I said, well, that should show you, that should tell you something. If every line you put out, if I bet every game the favorite and I win, isn't your line weak? He says, yeah. I said, well, there's your answer. If you bet every underdog and you win, you mean? Yeah, every underdog you win, it's weak. Or if I bet every favorite and I win, then something's weak. Yeah. If you bet one side, now every game, it's weak. Yeah. should be, right? Yeah. So he said, huh, yeah. Well, this guy happens to have a lot of outs. I said, I know. But betting every game, every day, and showing a profit every year, there's something innately wrong mathematically. Yeah. He goes, hmm. He's thinking. Well, we met, and this Ronnie gets in touch with me the next day. He said, boy, he really, he he likes you a lot. And next time he comes to New York, he wants to go out again. I said, no problem. Very interesting guy. I didn't ask him many questions. I had heard about him and stuff like that. And, you know, I figured out if I go out with him again a couple of times, maybe I'll ask, you know, some anecdotes or something. But, you know, I didn't want to be too forward. And then he started to come into the New York a little bit, you know, three, four times a year. And it was a good time for me because, you know, it, you know it was late 80s and stuff like that. And, you know, it was, it was still doing good. But, you know, things are changing and. He was booking the computers in the beginning. He was booking Doc Midland, and Doc Midland was beating him. And I always asked him, I said, is Doc Midland good? He says, I don't know. I never had to pay him. So I said, well, I said, geez. He says, "Eh, but the 11 to 10 will overcome it. The 11 to 10 will overcome it. But after a couple of years, he said, I really give up. And he wanted to get it. I think he was getting their sides and putting them on for a lot and then doing stuff with it. I think he wanted to bet them at the end. I'm not exactly sure. I never really asked him. But at the end, he was a believer. So when he was a believer, I was a believer. I kind of believed a little bit before, but I really didn't know exactly. I just knew games were flying and these guys were winning. And it kind of, t- it kind of took a little bit of the stuff off of us because don't forget, it's September and it's college football. We're betting baseball. So that was one month. And then don't forget the other baseball was April, the NBA. And so we really were only concentrated on, I guess, you know, June, July exhibition football was August. And, you know, some of the spotlight was taken off because everybody was talking about the computers. Everybody. I mean, gosh, you're laying seven, the game closes 14 and they're winning everything. They're killing it, killing it. Mm -hmm. So he was really a believer. And I said, then I asked him, and this time we're getting friendly. And I said, you know, guys tell me that it's you shouldn't book wise guys because they'll take away from the customers. He says, you only want to book a wise guy if you book them all. 
If you can only book a couple, you don't want to book them. That hit me like a ton of bricks. And that's what some of these big outs do. They book them all. Book all the wise guys. Just don't book one. Book them all. All the wise guys. Wise guys, as you know, go good. And you know, wise guys sometimes go bad. I'm sure you've spoken to some wise guys that have gone bad. Yeah. So now you're going to say, well, in the long run, they'll win. Okay, so then, you know, utilize them a little bit. You, you have enough action to offset it. You know, don't be taking, you know, if you're taking 10 dimes, so cut it to five. Cut them where they're going to bet you. But, and that really, that really, but he made a lot of money booking. Guys would come from all over the country to bet him. Like guys would go to, Poker players go to a millionaire's house. Millionaire blows a couple of hundred thousand. It's like you and me blowing a steak dinner. They don't care. They just played with the great card player and they tell everybody, he came to my house and oh, 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 I lost, but I'll I'll win next time, you know. Yeah. And that's when guys would come to him and they'd bet all over. Guy, Texas oil men, guys from guys with money and guys that could bet. And he, he'd book everybody because he'd put everybody on. And, you know. You hate I hate to throw out numbers, but he, he wasn't booking 5,000 a game from these guys. He was putting them on. Now, he knew that they didn't have anything because he would see at that time, you know, legalized sports books and games weren't moving and they were the only one playing it. So they were really opening the paper and says, give me Texas minus 20. OK, well, that's what the game should be. Give me uh, Oklahoma minus 22. OK. And that's what he was doing. So he made guys. That was really, but he wasn't afraid to put on wise guys. And that's what made his reputation. That'll take anything from anybody. Now, there were a couple of wise guys that had gone good, but that went bad that he used to, but they weren't paying. And he had cut them off and he made guys put up. And, you know, so he, you know, he got burnt a few times, but that's what happens when you have high stakes. Yeah. But he, he wasn't, he was fearless. And he said, 11 to 10 will overcome all, you know, the saying, Guys would come up to him all the time. How do you be a sports? How do you be a sports gambler? He says, "Marry a rich wife." That's how you become a good sports gambler. <laughs> Marry a rich wife. Yeah, yeah. that's the famous one. He said it all yeah. the time. Yeah, so, yeah. To some extent, it's true. And and you guys got you know, uh, how, did he when he moved to New York ultimately? And then you guys would. How often did you hang out with him? Well, he, he I think he bought a house in ninety. I think he bought an apartment in ninety two. So he's coming regularly now. And then ninety six. Maybe nine, I think 96, maybe 97, he moved permanently. So now we're going out ooh, three times a week. Wow. Maybe four, three for sure. Non-football season four, football season three. But I met so many people. I met more, so, oh my God, I met Dave Anderson, Mo Siegel. I met Len Dawson. I met uh, Paul Horning. And they looked at him as a god because, you know, when you're the high priest of odds, it's like you're behind the curtain and how do you make the odds? They don't not. It's a science, but it's also an art. And, you know, odds makers are like just gods because they know things that we don't know. What do they know? They really don't know. They're just <laughs> making odds that. But people think the odds makers know it all. Well, if they know it all, go and bet. Yeah. You know, make, 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 make millions. But they just know how to set odds where it's going to divide the betting public. And. So they, he had so many people, uh, Jake LaMotta, uh, you know, the, the movie uh, uh, Raging Bull. Um, 
he had a lot of a lot of guys. Elliot Gould, Peter Moss, the guy that wrote, I think he wrote the the, the Valachi papers. Uh, Jimmy the Greek. He had a lot of lot of celebrities, and I was sitting, I just listening. I just didn't say anything. When I was with other people other than him and maybe a couple of his cronies, I was quiet. But with his cronies, I would, you know, I was yakking. So, and it was great. And it was great. And by the way, couldn't get a check from him. Couldn't get a check from him. He, you, you, you know, and one time I picked up a check. He told me never do that again in front of my friends. But then when it was just me, him and another guy, I pick up checks all the time and he didn't care. So that was good. That was, that was, a, that was a compliment. That was a compliment. Well, well, you know, to be able to get that wisdom, um, especially in his later years, how, you know, what, what, what would, I don't know, like, just, I, what would you, what one thing that you'd say you uh, more than anything that you learned from Bob that you, that would, that sticks to you? Like, you know, um, what is one thing that stands out? I know there's so many, but there's one thing that, that kind of stands with you that you'll always remember Bob for. Think, think, think before you do. Think before you do. Don't be so quick with your opinions. Don't be so quick. Don't be so quick to echo somebody, follow the crowd. Take a step back and think, think. And, you know, a friend of mine once asked him, when, you know, I guess early 90s, you know, does this guy have any ability? He says he's got ability, but he's he's too quick with his opinions. And he, you know, he's got to. And my friend told me this and I thought about it. I said, well, he he was probably like that when he was my age, too. But it's a it's an interesting. I could see what he's saying. So you got to just, you know, take a step back sometime and, you know, you can't be emotional and you know, like 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 the Yankees in the World Series with Arizona. It was 9-11. They won those two games, uh two out homers after game four when it was two two series is over. After game five, three two Yankees. Oh my God. It's heaven sent. The Yankees can't lose 9-11. And then you turn on Don Best and they have Arizona dollar fifty. You know, the odds makers, they just you gotta you gotta you got to get get rid of the noise. Yeah. Here's a team that just, you know, and every ball, the talk show host, Yankees can't lose tonight. 15-1 Arizona. There's your momentum. 15-1 Arizona game six. And of course, Arizona won game seven. So you got to just tune out the noise. Take a step back. Do your analysis. If something, if there's something that you feel bothers you and you really can't put a number on it, then just forget the game. Skip the game. You know, Michigan, Ohio State last week. You know, with the Harbaugh situation, I didn't know how it was going to affect. That I think it was going to affect, I didn't know. So I just say, I make believe the game doesn't exist. That's all. You walk away. They play the Star Spangled Banner every day. There's plenty of games to play. Don't get yourself in a in a hole where you think something's going to happen because that's the picture you're drawing. Because that may not be the picture. And you lay in 11 at 10. Absolutely. Always remember that. Let's so talk, he taught uh, me that. He taught me. He taught me to treat people nice. You know, people behind a bar and people. You know, if you're gonna, if the tip is ten dollars, give him twenty. He always said you'll eat the same breakfast tomorrow, and he never had a driver's license. Never had a driver's license. Never. Always drove him, and he was driven in Vegas by some of his friends who I knew. The one I really liked was Jack Francie. He was he was the best. What a gentleman. 
he died a few years ago, five, six yeah. years ago. Tell me what your and interactions we, with with Jack. How was how was? Yeah, we we were very close. We were very close, and you know, we did did a few minor things, baseball and stuff. And uh, he was he was a great man. He was really a great man. What a role model. Great, great gentleman. Total gentleman. I miss him. I really miss him. I was in Europe when he had his funeral. I missed the funeral. I spoke to his son, but I have really haven't had contact with the family, and it bothers me away. But you know, what are you going to do? And he was he was a great man and a great gentleman and a real role model. And there's a guy who was a a great bookmaker, knew what to do, but his knowledge of sports was just okay, not great, but okay. And um, but a good bookmaker, and that's really you know, sports knowledge will get people in because they'll think he knows. It doesn't mean you're going to pick winners. But don't forget when I was younger, nobody had. Now, you speak to people, they have Turn on ESPN. Some of these guys are very knowledgeable. They overreact, but they're very knowledgeable. <clears throat> so now you can't dazzle really anybody. But Jack Frenzy, they said, Jack Frenzy, Bob Morton, they say they were the king of information. They always just had the right network, the right people uh, to ask and, and to know. And uh, is that a. They spoke yeah, to a lot of to key people. Is, is that a lot of people that they respected, that they yeah. respected? Yeah. So Jack Franzi, he might have favored a side on his own, but he might speak to somebody that he knew from Pittsburgh, where he came from. He might call somebody else in Louisiana. Then he said, what do you think of this? And if they matched what he was thinking, maybe he'd make a play. Maybe somebody would call him and say, Jack, I really like this game. He knew this guy was a long range winner. He'd play it. Um, Bob Martin had a, a lot of inf- a lot of guys that gave him information and he used it for his line and occasionally he would go bet himself he liked to bet boxing Bob he liked to bet boxing and you know and some guys sometimes guys would ask him what's you know at a dinner what's the price and he'd make a price and say oh I want to lay that and if he didn't like the guy he'd say and Bob would say well maybe I didn't make the right price let's say he said I, I make it 200 Maybe the game, maybe it should have been 300, but he didn't think it through. He might have had a drink or he was eating. And the guy said, oh, I want to lay it two to one. The guy says, oh, no problem, but I have a minimum, 10,000. The guy was a $500 better. Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. have that kind of money. I don't waste my time on any bets less than 10,000. And that's how he, you know. And if he didn't really like a guy, he'd say, I, my minimum is 25,000. You know, he'd like to, that's the way he would do things. He had a story in Vegas, it's a great story. There was a guy that nobody liked. And, you know, the guys that used to hang around there, you know, I don't know if Jack Franzi, Her, Herbie Hoops used to hang around there. I met him at the Churchill Downs with the clipboard. I knew Herbie Hoops, very nice guy, knowledgeable about sports. So naturally, when he would sit with these guys, these guys thought he's a genius. But he was knowledgeable. One time we went to lunch and I was blistering Allen Iverson. I said, the worst of this, a chucker, this. That night he scored, I think, 59. Next day we went for lunch. He said, Danny. You're strong. Iverson, 59. You're strong, Danny. Yeah, I know. I'm strong. You're right, Herbie. I'm strong. I'm right. You know, i blasting the guy. That night he scores 59. But uh, he, this guy, he didn't like Bob. And the guy was just, you know, he would come up and he'd say, what do you got on that game? What do you want to take? He said, whatever you got. So the guy would bet a thousand, let's say minus six. So the guy would bet and he'd see. Bob would change it to six and a half, right? Bob would see the guy. He changed it to five and a half. <laughs> so the guy would say, 
Bob, you made it five and a half. Yeah, he says, I like to bet against you. You want to bet more at five and a half? The guys <laughs> ran out between his legs. And he would do this constantly. And Bob did it all the time to him. He was so embarrassed. And people would clap. And that's the way he was. You know, he was a great guy. But if he didn't like you, he would give you a little zinger once in a while. Love it. Love it. Love it. So cool. Danny, this is incredible, man. I um, I really appreciate you coming on. I think, um, you know, it's just hearing your, your life story and how you got into this and how you were so successful and how you 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 just interacted with some of the biggest legends and how much of a legend you are yourself. Um, it's well, just, I thought I would put myself in that category. Oh, no, no, you're incredible, brother. Like, you know, listen, the Kosher Boys, that, that group is when you think of the, some of the top syndicates in the world, the koshers are, are, are definitely right up there in contention with anybody. Well, I'd like to think we were the first. I'd like to think we were the first to do what we did. Yeah. Now, there well, might absolutely. be somebody coming out of the woodwork, but I'd like to think we were the first because we started it in 1980. And I think that was that beat the computer, certainly, by, you know, a few years, two, no, three years. And, and, and for, uh, for you, you know, guys- I'd like to think we were for you guys to go as yeah. long as you did, Danny, that's the thing. You know, you said till 2005. That's a yeah. pretty hell of a, what a hell of a run. Before we close, I always ask every guest, name of this podcast is called Be Better Betters. If there's one bit of advice, if there's one thing you could leave some, you know, and you've given so many gold, you know, and so many nuggets in, in this podcast, but if there's one thing you could probably give an upcoming better or a professional better or anything, any bit of advice um, that you kind of uh, that you wish you knew early on, or that it took you a while to learn. What would it be? I'd say to anybody, and a lot of guys want to make a bet. That's okay, no problem. Uh, you know, one of your podcasters said said, "Don't be a lone wolf. Speak to somebody. See if you can get. See if you can somebody can verify your opinion." But the main thing I would do is any bet you make, and this does take a little work, is to write down what you bet. Write down your amount, put it in a little book, and then you self-handicap. So after a football season, you look, how many bets did I make? How many bet favorites did I bet? How many underdogs? Am I very underdog heavy? Do I bet 80% underdogs? Hmm. You know, you want it. The line in theory is right. Not the opening line necessarily. And of course, ESPN goes opening line. The game moved five points, you know. Some handicapper puts it out on a Sunday, 11, the game close 15, it moved five points. The opening line is a Monday afternoon game line. You want to use that as your opening line. But I, I prefer to use a closing line. I really prefer to, prefer to use a line that was there all week. So if there's a move at the end, let's say a game is 13 all week and some crew comes in and bangs it and it goes to 14, maybe I'll use a 13 and a half. I'll say that was the line because it was 13, it closed 14. I'll put it at 13 there because the guy could have laid 13, taken 14. I'll put it right in the middle. And that that's really look at the lines you bet and see what are you doing? Are you betting too many home underdogs? Are you not betting enough of this? Or, and self-handicap. Look at what you're doing because maybe, you know, you've got burnt on a few favorites and you don't want to ever bet a favorite. Well, you know, you want to lay three if you make the game six. And the second thing I do, don't make a bet until you make a line. You got to make a line. Even if you're an amateur, make a line. Because if you make the line 10, you know, you shouldn't be laying 13. <laughs> and if you make the line, you know, uh, 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 seven, you shouldn't be taking four. 
You just shouldn't. Then something's wrong with your thinking. Yeah. Make your own line before you bet. If you look at a game, don't look at the other. Make your prices first. It take you won't take you a lot of time. Just do it in your mind and self-handicap. That that's the best way to hold your own. And maybe you can go to a casino and be like a blackjack player and only lose half of one percent. Which if I play blackjack, which I haven't played in eight years, I don't like it, but I play with my friends. I figure I'm gonna lose a half of one percent because I'm gonna be very careful. Danny. Incredible advice, self-handicap. I love it. Thank you so much, Danny. It means a lot to me that you come on to this. I know you don't do this. You're a private guy, and I'm so happy to chronicle your career and 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 the whole uh, and what you've done to this for this business. And um, it means the world to me, brother. I really um really appreciate um you taking the time, and um would love to grab a meal so you know soon um sooner than later. Well, no problem. I'll give you I'll give you my great words of wisdom and you can go the opposite. I'm sure he'll make money, but uh, it was a lot of fun. I'm going to continue to listen to some of your podcasts. Thank you, Tim. It's part of self-handicapping and uh, it's it's really good. It is good what you're doing. You're chronicling stuff on something that's really hidden. And after this interview will be the last I ever do. I'm going to crawl back in my hole. And, um, you know, all I could say is I miss those guys. I miss Bob Martin and I miss... Um, and I miss Jack Franzi. I miss those guys. There's a couple of guys in Vegas I would socialize with. They're good. But eh, those were the days. And I don't know if I'll get to Vegas anymore. You know, I'm not a big traveler now. You know, and all that stuff with the way the world is today. And, you know, COVID-19 and all that stuff. You know, you're a little older, so you want to be a little more careful. But we'll see. Awesome, Danny. Thanks so much for the time. Until next time.